Hello and welcome to day four of our coverage of the midterm executive committee meeting of the International Council on English Braille for 2022, hosted by Braille Literacy Canada. It is currently 3.38pm in Canada. Just for a change, I thought I'd say the Canadian time first this time. Uh, That's 8.38pm in the UK. And uh, my name is Matthew Horspool from the UK and joining me from Braille Literacy Canada is Jen Golden. Once again, Jen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Matthew. It's great to be here. So we have a technical day today. Um, We have, first of all, we have the Braille Technology Committee report that's presented by James Bowden. Then we have an open discussion on Braille technology. Then we have a break. And then we have the CMC Technical Committee report and and discussion, and that's being chaired by Clive Lansink. So I suppose the first question is, what on earth is the difference between the Braille Technology Committee and the UEB, the CMC Technical Committee? That's a great question, because I'm sure there are people who are wondering that. So the Refreshable Braille Technology Committee deals with more of the technological things like how braille is being dis- displayed on braille devices the you, if you've had a chance to read the report you'll see that that james in particular has although he's he's very modest and he doesn't he doesn't actually you know try to make it come across this way but he's done a tremendous amount of work in ensuring that the ueb tables in lib louis are updated so it's sort of that kind of technology that we're looking at when it comes to the Refreshable Braille Technology Committee. The UEB technical component is about how the code itself is used to convey technical materials such as math and science. And so one is literally technology and the other is technical in the sense of the kind of materials that the code the braille code is going to cover. Yes. And it's I think it's probably important to get some history out of that because you're calling it the Refreshable Braille Technology Committee. Actually, Refreshable was dropped. I can't remember when it was dropped, but you're right. It started its life as the Refreshable Braille Committee. I think it didn't even have technology in it. I think it was Refreshable Braille and then it was changed to Braille Technology. And then the, the UEB Tech, the CMC Technology Committee, it, it it didn't exist for a long time because they tried to keep that within code maintenance, didn't they? And then I think they must have decided at some point that it was too much work and probably different people needed to be involved in those discussions to the main coding discussions. Yeah, those are both reasons, I would say, in terms of the amount of work. And also, you know, there are people that would be perfectly comfortable helping with the the CMC kind of the, the more general things. But then when you start getting into things that are really technical, obviously, tends to be maybe different people who have the expertise in that area. Mm. And you can see that because many different, many of the countries actually have different reps for the CMC as a whole versus the technical component. Yes, absolutely, they do. And I I think it's probably important to actually stress just how technical this stuff does get. So we're talking about anything from X squared which, I mean, might sound technical to some, but really isn't all that technical at all, <laughs> right the way through to, I mean, I don't even want to give examples, but like... Sine and cosine. Right, and, and, and even higher level than that, yeah. you know, really, really quite um, detailed work, you know, and there's there's questions about what sort of grade one indicator should we be using in this, you know, in this situation and what should we be using in this and should we recommend anything and... 
yeah, it's it's a minefield actually when you get into it. And things like spacing. When mm. do you space, you know, you uh, obviously there's a, a major principle of UEB is to follow print, but then there are certain things that can, you know, where you where you have to have that that consideration. So, and to your point, you know, this this kind of content really can be as basic as four plus four equals eight, all the way up to you know high level calculus chemistry all that kind of thing so it is it's a broad range within its own specific specific technical um i want to say genre but that's probably not (laughs) exactly the right the the technical genre but within its own specific sphere i guess yeah absolutely and the work of this committee um i can't remember when this committee was established um and whether we should really be calling it a committee because it's not a, a a permanent icb committee is it i think once this certainly the the ueb tech committee once the work on the technical guidelines is finished icb can disband the tech part of it much more easily than it can disband the code maintenance committee and it was established and we've had we've been finding chairs for it and then you know, bits of work have been done and then the chair has, has had to step down for one reason or another. And so the current chair, Clive Lansink, um, I don't think has been the chair for that long. He was appointed actually just in March of this year. And uh, we're thrilled that he, you know, has been able and willing to to step into this role. It's one of the biggest things with UEB Tech is that it just, you know, we need to clarify some of the issues that, that you've already raised that we sort of talked about, but also we need a lot of example. We need more examples. And mm. that's one of the things too, that I believe this, the committee will get to. And especially, um, I don't know if I want to open this can of worms, but in the United States where Nemeth code is still being used kind of in conjunction, maybe that's not the right way to put it, but the Nemeth code in UEB context is still being used as well as U- UEB technicals, the com- you know, that component of UEB kind of depending on the state uh, that you're in. And so it's it's something that, I mean, all all countries certainly could benefit from that, but it, it I know that lots of questions come out of the, the US asking for, for more examples. Yes, and I think from everywhere asking for more examples. So what's what's likely to happen tonight? I guess probably we'll end up I mean, this is all in the second half of the meeting, but we won't really have time to talk about it during the break, so I'm talking about it now. But I guess probably what will happen is a bit like yesterday, there'll be one or two issues that Clive in particular would like to read the room on, and maybe you know he'll open it up to, to further discussion. But I, we're not going to get anything resolved tonight, are we? It's going to be about what should the committee tackle next rather than actually tackling it, I think. Yeah, I think you're totally right. We're not going to fix, you know, totally revise the document tonight, obviously, but it's going to be a great opportunity for just for discussion, because so far we've, you know, we've been emailing back and forth. And, and I know, I believe that Clive is, you know, he's planning to schedule a meeting soon, but it'll be a good opportunity for observers that are participating. They can, you know, they can give input as well. And I think, based on, again, I don't want to give Clive's report, but he has gotten input from the various country reps and has sort of a sense of what priorities, you know, might be there. For example, the grade one indicator being 
you know, being an issue. And so I'm going to guess, Matthew, and again, not being a prophetess, but I will guess that we may spend a decent amount of time talking about the grade one indicator. I We'll, we'll see afterwards if that's what happens. That's just Jen Golden's guess. <laughs> well, are you the rep for the tech committee? Because if you are, then maybe it's a good guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know what? I, I mean, I'm obviously on the list and I get emails, but our our rep is a lovely woman named Michelle Hayes from uh, British Columbia. And she is, you know, she's one of the people that you want to say, well, I don't know what Michelle has forgotten. You know, Michelle has forgotten more than I'll ever know, that kind of mm. thing. She's an excellent, I've worked with her. She's an excellent transcriber and uh, tactile graphics and all these kinds of things. And so she does this kind of technical stuff. So I'm I'm very grateful that she has agreed to serve as our representative in on this uh, this committee. Mm. So if you're listening, Michelle, thank you. <laughs> I don't know if she is, but <coughs> well, let's hope so. And uh, and thanks for everyone else who's on the committee uh, as well for all of their yes, hard indeed. work. And of course, we'll spend much more time talking about technical things at the end of the day when we have a better idea of uh, what has been discussed. But turning our attention back to the Braille Technology Committee. So um, there's, it feels like, I mean, it is the Braille Technology Committee and there's lots of work that the Braille Technology Committee does, but it feels like for the purposes of today, it's almost going to become a bit like the Lib Louie Committee. Um, not that it is, <laughs> because of course, Lib Louie is not maintained by ICEB, Lib Louie is maintained by uh, Christian Egley and co. Um, but we really are putting a lot of effort into Lib Louie. Um this sort of didn't come from us originally, did it? Just to just to take a step back, LibLui is a Braille translation library, if you like. So a screen reader that wants to embed Braille support rather than writing its own Braille support will use LibLui. So it's being used by JAWS, it's being used by NVDA, by VoiceOver, it's embedded in Braille embossers, it's embedded in Braille note takers. You know, it really is a very common library and it became a common library well before ICEB took an interest in it didn't it yeah and I think sort of how our connection well like I said not necessarily speaking to how our connection happened but part of it is that James has been very involved with it I think he, he you know without sort of presuming to speak for him he would be involved with Libby regardless of his his you know, connection and involvement to ICEB, but because it's used in so many other products, it does make sense for ICEB to kind of take an interest. And so I think it's one of those things where, you know, how sometimes a committee chair, even though they're, you know, their committee has specific functions, their own interests and, and expertise can sort of have an impact on the direction of the committee. And so James has been very involved and I, I've, had the opportunity to to proofread some of his work. I I like never find mistakes in what James does. By the way, he would never <laughs> tell you that. But I I you know it's a rare rare day when I you know find an error in anything that James has. It really done. is. And even it, when you it, think it, you found an error, you go back and you say, "Look, James, I found an error here." And he goes, "Oh no, you haven't, because this yeah, is exactly. I did it that way." And you go, "Oh yeah, now don't I feel small?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's uh it's a great you know he got me to proof one that with all the different, you know, accents from different languages that, as they're represented in UEB. So I kind of had fun with that one too. But um, yeah, so I think that James's own sort of, you know, not bias so much as his his other, you know, things that he's involved in have, have affected this committee. 
you know, and then I think it, I think it is a good thing because again, you know, in his report, he's going to talk about how we then contacted manufacturers to, to encourage them to make sure that they're using the latest versions of, uh, version of um, LibLui because that's going to affect the output that, that Braille readers get. And so I find it very interesting because one of the things about the Braille Technology Committee is that, you know, people sort of, Braille readers hear about it and, and they're like, oh, I, you know, Braille tech is great. I, I'm really, I feel really strongly about Braille displays and, you know, our discussion about hard copy notwithstanding, right? We all do feel, mm-hmm. a lot of us do feel very strongly about it. But then you get on the committee and you realize it's actually sort of a different level of technical that you're doing. Like, we're not really talking about how to use Braille tech or how to, you know, what kinds of displays, how do you decide which display to get, you know, some of those more practical day-to-day things are great things and they're, you know, they're important, but this committee can, can get kind of technical on a whole different, different level. Yeah, absolutely. And the people on the committee, the, the report, I don't think lists the people on the committee, but there are some very, very uh, knowledgeable people on the committee. There are also some very, very well-connected people on the committee. So uh, the way in which the letter to manufacturers was sent out was we were all asked to send out the letter to one or two people. And the reason why it was done that way partly was to sort of lessen the workload on one person, but also because, you know, um, not to blow my own trumpet, but, you know, I, I'm friends with Andrew Flatras at Humanware. I'm friends with Eric Damery and Len Gordon at Vispero, right? So I can send them messages that probably would have more weight than just somebody else sending a message. And and likewise, you know, there's people on the committee who are friends with people at Microsoft. Um, you know, the, the, the industry contacts in there are just absolutely fantastic. And so you're able to get quite a lot done. Yeah, it was really helpful. And a lot of, uh, you know, we we sort of, took on the ones where we felt like, you know, we had contacts or as you said, we had, we had friends or new people. And I think that was really helpful because it's, it's just, even just your comfort level in doing it and, and knowing like, you know what, I'm going to send it right to this person that I know who may be the president of the company, or it might be, you know, a VP of something or other, just because you happen to have interacted with them. It, it does help when you're able to do that. So I think it, uh, I mean, the reason, honestly, part of why I am on that committee, I wasn't for a while, which is fine. I, I certainly don't need to be on every single, you know, none of us needs to be on every single committee, right? But I ended up suggesting that I might as well be the Canadian rep because I was working with James on the Lib Louie stuff. So mm. I thought, you know what, I might as well be the rep because I'm the one that's, you know, I'm I'm helping him with proofreading and and just different things. And so I just thought, you know what, I might as well just do it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think just going back to the the LibLui work at a sort of high level, at a, at a policy level, um, the LibLui work um, led to the resolution that brought people, you know, to to contact manufacturers. And um, I think I just wanted to stress before we move on that. What we're asking manufacturers to do is to use the latest version of LibLui. We're not asking yes. them to use LibLui. If they, you know, if they want to use a different Braille translator, then they can use a different Braille translator. We're not um, recommending LibLui over any other Braille translator. But it's all too easy for a manufacturer to put an old version of LibLui in and then forget that they put it in, or like forget that it needs to be brought up to date. So the resolution is not about recommending LibLui. It's about saying if you're using LibLui, then for goodness' sake, keep it up to date. Yeah, that's a great clarification because that's exactly what that was exactly the point of the resolution. Mm. 
And also, if you've uh, got a few dollars to spend, then uh, could you uh, kindly uh, spend them on Lib Louis development? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there, yes. There's definitely an element of that. The other main um, thing that's come out of the Braille Technology Committee is uh, a new file standard. Well, it's not really come out of the Refreshable Technology Committee. No, I'm doing it now, Refreshable. But... Um, you know, it's it, habit, isn't it? <laughs> it? It really is, yeah. Um, but it, it's the, the the Braille Technology Committee is involved in it. The creation of a new uh, Braille standard. Now, this has really been led by APH, and I certainly don't want to speak for APH here. Uh, there's plenty of information on the web if you want to go and look it up. I think they've done webinars about EBRF and stuff like that. But they have, um, yeah. But yeah, EBRF. <clears throat> I think I, I keep wanting to call it enhanced BRF. I don't think it's quite enhanced BRF, is it? It's it's something else, but this is like um, navigable Braille. So you can have semantic markup like headings and lists in a BRF file. Yeah, it's 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 really exciting. I and and you're right. You know, our our ICEB Braille Technology Committee can't take credit in any way, really, except that I think a lot of us on the committee are involved in some other capacity not necessarily in developing i know james again is involved and has different connections my involvement is sort of more because of my role with bana that you know aph is a bana member and you know there's sort of that connection there and and uh you know we're trying to just i i guess be make sure that we know what's going on. I mean, we've sort of talked about this, as you said, APH has done webinars, but I know um, BLC did in conjunction with a bunch of organizations earlier this year, we did a World Braille Day, World Braille Days, uh, different activities. And one of them was a panel that where we talked about technology. And so I kind of gave a really, it was difficult in about two, three minutes, I had to give kind of an overview of the EBRF format and stress, you know, this is, it's still under development, it's not mm -hmm. official and there's other, I believe other organizations around the world interested in the same thing, um, but just to kind of let people know what's out there. And so, you know, it's my hope that it, it will, it will eventually that it will come to be a standard so that it's not, there aren't six different ways of doing EBRF around the world that it will be standardized so that more Braille readers can benefit from it. Yeah. I think, um, <coughs> excuse me, I think one of the things that's really quite exciting about EBRF and also really rather challenging about EBRF is it's trying to be the one file format to rule them all. So you can mm -hmm. load an EBRF on a Braille display and navigate with it. You can also load an EBRF into an embosser and emboss it in hard copy. Mm -hmm. And it's designed to be compatible with, you know, reformatting Braille for both of those. But yeah. then you've got to, you know, transcribers are quite used to transcribing things very precisely and that being saved in the file and exactly what they transcribed is what they print and in order to achieve that with EBRF they're going to have to be very careful because the way we format things in the UK is different to the way things are formatted in the US so like a heading two in the US might be different to a heading two in the UK. Well yeah that's a good point and my my understanding is that EBRF would have like you would in some ways, it would be a little like EPUB in terms of its structure, like mm. the, what's the word I'm looking for, like the, the different components of it, but that there would be a means to sort of choose, 
almost like choosing your CSS, you know, choosing yes, your style sheets, cho yes. choosing your style sheets so that you can say, Hey, this is, I want, you know, I want UCAF formatting or I want BANA formatting or, mm. or, you know, whatever it is that you might want. Um, and one of the things, and I, I believe it was William Freeman of APH who said that, that, you know, he was ta we were talking about how normally, you know, let's say you use Duxbury and you create this, file and you're incorporating all the styles into it it's you've got everything there and then as soon as you save to brf it's lost right yeah. you don't lose the formatting from a an appearance perspective right it's the things are indented where they're supposed to be but in terms of the actual like metadata let's say yeah the semantics yeah you 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 lose all of that so this will be i think this will have a lot of a lot of advantages for sure oh yeah I, I entirely agree i think i was really just pointing it out because there'll be people listening to this who think well come on it's easy we've got html so why don't we just put less than h1 greater than you know and then a load of braille characters and then less yeah, than and slash not, h1 yeah. and it's it's not as simple as that because yeah embossers need to know how to interpret that braille displays need to know how to interpret that you know what happens if you get a table that's been designed for a 40 cell braille page and you're reading it on a 20 cell display ebrf is designed to handle that but it's going to take i mean what a year or two probably more before we're at a point where that's actually working reliably I think that's going to be the tricky part because tables being what they are, right? Sometimes you have to go in and manually play with things to get things to fit properly. And you kind of don't know what's going to happen, especially, you know, even 20, 20 and 40 cells may not be as bad because it's sort of like you're dividing it in, in half in a way. Although, of course, that can, you know, depending on where the word ends, that can be just as problematic. <laughs> but even going from like 30 to 40 or yes. 40 to 30, right? You, 40 you, to 32, yeah. If And 32, <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, I, I, I agree with you. I think tables, and you know, if you look at, not to get us off on this, but even with like with other formats, tables always seem to be the most challenging thing. And they're becoming more and more prevalent because, you know, in the print world, they're they're everywhere and so we really do have to figure out something that's going to work quite well in you know in braille and in ebrf and i suspected that this again another jen golden prediction this e, that ebrf may be uh, quite a topic of conversation today but again we'll 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 you know we'll see what we see or hear we what we will. hear i guess we, we will find out very soon because it is yes. now 4 p.m in canada 9 p.m in the uk and the meeting cannot start until jen golden is there so jen i'm gonna let you go and uh hop onto the chairman's well possibly not the chairman's seat but certainly the the mc's seat and uh, we will see you back in the break all right thanks very much matthew you're listening to live coverage of the Midterm Executive Committee meeting of the International Council on English Braille for uh, 2022 with Matthew Horspool and Jen Golden. Jen Golden just uh, gone to start the meeting off. And uh, we're getting one or two people now coming into Zoom. Uh, I'm just looking to see what's going on here. Um, six people currently. So I don't think we're quite ready to get started just yet, but we will be soon. Um, a particular shout out because I haven't uh, spoken to spoken to them very much to um, Daphne Hitchcock and Anthony Tibbs. They've been behind the scenes a lot this week, just making sure that everything works from a Zoom point of view, you know, checking for raised hands. Quite often you've heard, you know, someone say, yes, so and so's got their hands up. You know, that's either Daphne or Anthony. And they really have been doing an absolutely sterling job 
keeping this uh, ship on the road for us. So, you know, real thanks to to them for doing that. And uh, I think we're just letting the last few people in. A reminder, if you're listening to this and you'd like to register for the meeting, you can do that at iceb.org forward slash register. Um, and if you do that, you'll get the Zoom link and you'll also get access to the reports. If you are listening to the podcast and the midterm has already finished, don't worry, you'll be able to access the reports from the ICEB website at iceb.org. A reminder that the first thing to come up tonight is the report of the Braille Technology Committee with James Bowden. James is from the UK and is the chair of the Braille Technology Committee. And the chair of the Braille Technology Committee doesn't necessarily have to sit on the executive Um so Clive Lansink, who is chairing the UEB CMC technical committee, he is not actually on the executive. He's just the chair of that committee. I say just the chair of that committee. I mean, it's fantastic work that he's doing and uh, I look forward to working with him. But yes, um, <clears throat> just so happens that James is on the executive and also is the chair of that committee. I say he's from the UK and uh, his day job is at RNIB. Uh, so yes, there is some considerable overlap between the work that he does at RNIB and the work that he does for ICEB. Clive Lansink from New Zealand. And uh, Clive has a history of uh, working in mathematical subjects and technical subjects and also uh, has done a bit of work as a Braille transcriber, I believe. And we may find out more about Clive in the second half of the session when we, uh, we hear Clive's report. Just uh, looking and checking the, the state of Zoom and we still only have four people in. So they're doing the same as they did yesterday. They're bringing people in and then moving them into breakout rooms and eventually the breakout rooms will close and we will know then that it is time to start the meeting. Possibly there will be fewer people tonight than there were yesterday. Uh, it was quite popular yesterday with 60 people in. I'm not quite expecting 60 this time. But we may have, you know, 30 or 40. We might get 50 um, if we're lucky. And um, it'll be great to hear uh, what everybody has to say. Four minutes past the hour. And I'm literally just talking now while I wait for people um, to come in and for the meeting to get started. I think... There we go. The number of participants is slowly coming up. We have 12 people in the room now. Uh, we have 13. So, yeah, it's definitely coming up. I think we are ready to get started. So I will fade Zoom up. Um, we are currently getting some background noise from Zoom. We're getting some uh, noises for participants joining. I think they'll be turning those off. Um, but if they don't and you're listening to the live stream, we'll have it available on the podcast without those noises. And I'll mute everyone before we get going and then the, they can unmute as they need. All right, we should be set to go. There, I am unmuted now, I think. This is Judy Dixon, president of ICEB. Welcome to day four of our midterm executive committee meeting. Things have been going quite well. I shouldn't say that. I probably will jinx the next two days, but I'm pleased with how well things are going so far. Thank you to our assistants, Anthony and Matthew and all the other folks who are behind the scenes making this all run so smoothly. 
As I'm sure all of you know by now, this meeting is being coordinated and sponsored by Braille Literacy Canada. So I will turn it over to Jen for her Canadian moment. Well, thank you, Judy, and hello, everyone. Before I do our CanCon moment, I'm just going to remind everybody in terms of Zoom, we're asking uh, people to stay on mute and during times of discussion of people, especially if people could raise their hands and our fabulous moderators, Anthony and uh, Daphne will, will help to monitor that and make sure we know about all the raised hands again. Um, and uh, let's, I'll just quickly, Alt-Y on a PC is to raise and lower your hand. Alt-A is to mute and unmute. If you are on an iPhone, there is the mute button in the bottom left, I believe, of the application, of, of the app. And there's a more button at the bottom right where you can go in and uh, do the, the raise, raise and lower hand. On a Mac, it's option Y to raise your hand. And I command shift A to mute and unmute. And if you're on an actual telephone, it's star six to mute and unmute. And again, we would ask people on, if anyone's here by phone to stay on mute as well until um, it's time for discussion. Uh, and then star nine is to raise and lower your hand. So that's the whirlwind tour through the Zoom protocols. And now we'll just have a quick CanCon moment. So just for anybody who's kind of new and, and not Canadian, we have a thing in Canada where we have to, we have regulations to make sure that on things like radio and TV, we have a certain percentage of Canadian content, which we often refer to as CanCon. So that's kind of what I've been calling these little I don't know, Canadian infomercials. All right. So one of the things that I think it's important for you all to know if you aren't Canadian and you're planning to come here anytime soon, which we'd love for you to do, we are in the in the middle between the UK and the US in, in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to our spelling and our measurements. So, you know, we're Celsius Fahrenheit, uh, imperial metric. When it comes to spelling, there was an actual act of parliament many like at least 100 years ago indicating that you know or stipulating that we would use the u in words like color and favor and neighbor yes it really was an act of parliament so we use the u but we say z and when we spell words like when we spell words like tire we, we oh now i'm echoing there we go uh we we use the i and not like the us and not the y uh, we use a Z in words like organization rather than an S like in uh, in the UK, but in French it's spelled with an S, so I don't know, I often get confused. Basically, I've come to the conclusion that if you're not from Canada, you'll never be able to spell anything here or measure anything either. So here's a little overview of weights and measures for us. So our weight and height, we in everyday speech, we would say it in uh, you know, feet and inches and pounds, but on things like driver's licenses, it's it's always in meters and and uh, kilograms. Milk comes in liters. Flour comes in kilograms. Ovens are Fahrenheit. So when you're baking with your, I was going to say, you know, with your whatever it is of, you know, 500 milliliters of whatever and all that, you're still going to cook in Fahrenheit, although you can get the information in Celsius. Distance is, is in kilometers, which we, you know, as slang, we, we sometimes call them clicks. And it's very important to know that uh, temperature and temperature is in Celsius and rainfall and particularly snowfall 
Snowfall is also in Celsius. And, and this is a really important thing if you ever come to Canada, you need to know how snowfalls are going to be measured. Because if you come in winter, there's going to be a lot of that. So that's just a little heads up for the next time that you come and visit us. Over to you, Judy. Thanks very much, Jen. It's so interesting. Thank you. All right, today is Braille Technology Day. Well, we're going to start with Braille Technology for the first half of our meeting. And then for the second half, we will talk about the technical materials, code maintenance committee technical materials. So we'll do that after the break. We're going to talk about Braille Technology until about 2120, have a 10 minute break, and then go to to uh, CMC and Clive Lansink, the chair of the technical materials committee. So I am now going to hand it over to James Bowden, James Bowden, excuse me, uh, the chair of the Braille Technology Committee. Thank you very much, Judy. Um, I, I was intrigued, Jen, did you mean to say snowfall is measured in Celsius or did you mean millimeters? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to make sure you were listening. Actually, it it, it, it is measured in uh, centimeters. <laughs> they both start with a C. Come on. <laughs> Actually, I, I have to say I was caught out like this. Uh, it was a flight to the US once and we were landing in Chicago and uh, the, the pilot, you know, they normally come on the intercom and say, you know, the weather outside is so many degrees and so on. And it said the weather outside is 23 degrees. And all us Brits were thinking 23. That sounds quite pleasant course when we got there there was snow on the ground because of course 23 is what we normally call minus five um yeah it does well, really help to know it the really local conventions. it really does and and i i don't want to delay you any anymore but <clears throat> i was going to tell this story because i was hiking one time with some friends in Gatineau, which is just over the ottawa river in in quebec in natalie's province and i was you know we were hiking along and we were stopped at an out at like a an, a lookout and there were a bunch of people just a little ways away from us talking and trying to figure out where they were going to go next. And I could tell by their accents that they were from the U.S. and also by their conversation because they were looking at the map and they're going, OK, well, I don't know. How long is a kilometer? Because I know it's not the same as a mile and I'm not sure. And maybe it's it's 2.2. It's just, This went on for about five minutes. And I, I said to my I said, I'm sorry, guys, I can't I, I have to help them. And because I felt bad. So I went over to them and I said, I'm really sorry. I don't mean to eavesdrop, but there's 2.2 pounds in a kilogram and 1.6 kilometers in a mile. And they were very thankful that I was uh, so uh, obtrusive, whatever the word is. So and then they, they knew how long it would take to get where they needed to go. Do you know, Jen, I really love it when the blind person directs the sighted. I've done it myself. It's great. <laughs> anyway, technology and Braille technology, the ICEB, Refreshable Braille Technology Committee. It's a very long title, but basically it's all about technology, um, particularly Braille displays and Braille tables on them and that kind of stuff. So we have representatives from all ICEB countries, and I'll just read their names out. Um, I'm not sure all of them are here today, so... Um, we will, we will try to uh, eliminate any libel. Um, so we have Sam Taylor from Australia. We have Jen Golden from Canada. We have Brian Dalton as our Ireland rep. Paula Waby from New Zealand. Dina Moodley is the South African rep, 
rep. I am the UK rep, and apparently I chair this committee. And William Freeman is the US rep. And we have lots and lots of observers, but we can't beat Kathy's CMC by a long way. We have about 30 on our list. So the focus for the Braille Technology Committee has been really three main areas. And one is perhaps the most important, and it is improving the Braille output from the LibLui software. Now, LibLui is, if you like, the Braille translation bit included in many products such as screen readers, phones, even braille displays themselves these days, some of them use LibLui. And for a long time, it was well known that there were lots and lots of errors in various places. Now, I've always said it's really, really easy to make a braille translator that gets things 80% correct. But anybody who knows anything about reading words will know that 80% just ain't good enough. It's harder to get it to 85, it gets harder to get it to 90, and it gets harder and harder as you approach 100%. But that's not an excuse. We are making an effort, and we have made lots and lots of improvements, particularly leading up to the 2020 General Assembly, as I reported last time. So in improvements in the last couple of years have included inclusion of signs which have been newly adopted um, like the checkmark symbol and if anybody doesn't know the checkmark symbol it's dot four dots one four six and us Brits will call that a tick and it's a little bit similar in shape in print to a square root sign Hence, it's kind of based on that sh. Dot um, five sh is a square root, and dot four sh is a tick. They have very different meanings, therefore a slightly different braille symbol. We've also added more accented characters. Um, now, in UEB, the accent mark or the modifier is kind of considered as a separate thing in terms of UEB symbols. But when you actually look at computer text, they are often a combined symbol like E-acute is one character. And so we have to deal with lots and lots of them. And we added several more. There were some mathematical symbols which got added. Um, most notably, negated symbols were missing. So um, there was there's, there's a mathematical sign which is called there exists. And there's also a mathematical sign there does not exist. There's a mathematical sign equals and there's another one does not equal. And so there were a few of these kind of things which were missing and they got added. And of course, the new short forms, the newly approved four short forms were added and a bunch of fixes for words, which I'm not going to list, otherwise we'd be here quite a long time. There is a lot more to do, and I am very grateful to all those who have helped with this project, in particular the CMC, who've helped when it's not being clear always how words should be contracted. We were talking about that yesterday. 
in particular to those who have helped peer review the work that's being done to make sure it actually is correct. Um, anybody who's ever played with LibLui, you cannot just submit a table. You have to also submit tests which prove the table actually does what it's supposed to do. And it's, it's a kind of belt and braces approach. You have to kind of validate what you meant. So if you did make a typo, you have to make that same typo twice in order to make the test fail of a false, if I can say it that way. You have to kind of get it right twice. It's kind of a, it's a good thing. And finally, I'd like to thank all those who've actually sent in problems. Because I mean, it's really good to hear, hey, have you typed this, this, and this, and this? It comes out wrong. In fact, I was told of one today involving short forms in the reverse direction. And I tested it with three random short forms. And if you have a semicolon after it, it don't work. So something else for us to fix. Brilliant. I'll keep it coming. So that's the first major area of work. The second major area is encouraging manufacturers to actually use the latest version of LibLui. Now this again came up back in 2020 and earlier this year a letter was sent to over 30 manufacturers, known manufacturers which use LibLui. There's actually a list on the LibLui website and we have received some positive responses from some of those we contacted. Now, some of them are already using the latest version. Some of them already have great plans to keep up to date. Um, uh, but it's always good to kind of keep in touch with people and say, you know, did you know, etc. The best will be, yeah, we already do that. And the worst is, oh, my goodness, we didn't think about that. So which is really great to hear that People are considering keeping up to date, and hopefully that means better Braille for anybody using LibLui. If you want a letter to send to somebody you know who's not using it, please get in touch. And the final area of work which we've been involved with is the EBRF spec. Um, which has been mentioned a couple of times, and I thought it might be worthwhile explaining a bit more what is EBRF, what is it for, and what might its benefits be. And we're hopefully all fairly familiar with the concept of BRF files, Braille Ready Format, I think it stands for, uh, or Braille Ready File, and it's the kind of thing that contains braille characters arranged in pages and you can read it on your braille display or you can send it to a braille embosser and out comes beautiful pages of braille according to the BRF file. Now BRF as lovely as it is and as nice and small and easy to work with as it is does have some limitations. All of us in the English speaking world base our BRF files on the USA computer code. Now I'm not going to get into too much detail what that actually means, but if you're not in an English speaking country, you may not necessarily use that same code, which means 
if I, in an English-speaking country, send a BRF file to somewhere in a non-English country, or if I receive a BRF file from a non-English country, you've got some jiggery-pokery to do to make it work. The second limitation, I think is a, is a nice word, of the current BRF file is it does not have any structural information above the level of line and page. So you have a line of braille characters, you have a carriage return. You have another line of braille characters, you have a carriage return. You have another line and so on and so on, all the way down the page. And at the bottom of the page, you're supposed to have a form feed character, which marks the start of the next page. Very basic, very simple. Now I love what William Freeman and Greg Stilson said in the presentation about eBRF, um, which said, the transcriber goes to all this effort styling up the Braille in the Braille transcription software with headings and bulleted lists and tables and all this other great information. And then when you generate the BRF file, you basically throw it all away, which is kind of a bit nonsensical, really. You've got all that effort. You make some beautiful Braille in terms of layout, but you've lost the actual meaning of the different bits of content. The upshot of that is, if you only have a Braille file, you cannot directly say, go to the next heading, find me a table. Where's the next paragraph? I mean, yes, you can do it by doing a bit of human intelligence, but a machine can't do it quite so easily. And yes, there are things you can do using uh, a find command. And you can type in, for example, chapter space two, and it will hopefully find the beginning of the next chapter. But that relies on you knowing A, that the word chapter was there and B, how the number two was written. It might have been digit two, word TWO, or even a Roman numeral II. And was that II capitals or smalls? And etc. etc. It's hit and miss. It's doable and it's incredibly useful how much you can do with a find command, but you have to know what you're doing. You can't just press a button like we do in screen readers and jump to the next heading, no matter what that is. And the third thing with EBRF, which I'd like to try and sort out, is the problem on some Braille displays in particular. If you have a Braille file which was created for a different line length than your Braille display, then typically either you get half filled lines if your Braille display is longer than the original Braille, or a worse problem is what I call long line short line syndrome. So if you have, say, a Braille file which originally created for 40 cells wide and your Braille display is only 32 cells wide, you get a line of 32 and then a line which with, a, with a little tiny bit left over. And then the third line is actually the third, the second line of the original. And the fourth line is the little tiny bit left on the end of the second line and the fifth line. And it gets incredibly annoying to read long line, little tiny bit, long line, little tiny bit. So EBRF hopefully gives us the possibility of if you if you could say the word reflowing the text 
onto whatever line length the, the page the, or the electronic page or the embossed page actually has. So there's a lot of potential benefits with this EBRF spec. And a final thing, which I just noticed from my notes, hard copy braille, by the way, um, is an EBRF file can also contain graphics. Uh, and we're beginning to see developments of tactile tablets, which can display graphics as well as text. So we look forward very much to the development of this EBRF um, standard. It's being headed up by the American Printing House. And I understand that the DAISY Consortium are currently looking at the proposal. At the 2020 General Assembly, the first resolution was to do with Braille technology and getting manufacturers to, to get the latest versions and keep up to date and fix errors in and help them and so on and so forth. I know we're discussing re resolutions tomorrow, but I'm hoping what we've done so far in the technology committee has gone a long way to fulfilling this resolution. Now, there are three items I would like to open for discussion. But before we do that, has anybody got any comments or questions, etc., about this report? James, about the EBRF, uh, you will recall that in uh, 2011, the PEF format was developed and the people who did it actually got an award for it, but it, it, it never took off. Uh, why did it die? And how can we um, prevent uh, EBRF from dying? It's an extremely good question there, Christo. And in fact, I recently came across PEF again um, with a project which I've been working on with the DAISY group about music. Um, the PEF file is not dead as far as I'm aware. Some countries, particularly non-English speaking countries, do use it. Um, the PEF file, as I understand it, is basically it solves the first problem that EBRF is trying to solve, which is the international problem. If I have a file written in USA, computer braille, and I give it to a country which doesn't use it, uh, etc., um, that problem is solved with the PEF file. The other problems of the semantic information, headings, tables, paragraphs, and the reflowing of text is not solved. Um, so that's kind of half the answer. The other half of the answer, I said in 2020, any new Braille format in order to fly, I think, needs to be adopted by hardware manufacturers, such as Braille displays, embossers, etc., software products, such as your Braille translators, and also Braille production houses. If we all adopt the new format, whatever that might be, then it will fly. But if we don't, then we have this 
very kind of lukewarm actual take up. James, we have a question from Mike. You do indeed. Warmest greetings, everybody, again from Mike Howell. James, I hope you won't be offended or indeed dismissive of the point that I want to make to you. It was indeed cards on the table myself who reported to you that if you write the word receiver, that is to say R-C-V-R, followed by colon, uh, into uh, Lib Louis, it will not translate if you get a print from it. The point of intrigue that I want to ask you about, you might like to tell us whether indeed uh, other derivatives such as RCVG colon or presumably semicolon uh, have the same uh, annoying effect and indeed how you go about correcting uh, this point. End of question. Sure. Um, so yes, Mike, just before our call, I did test that. And in my copy of Lib Louis, um, it was the semicolon that caused the problem. The colon actually worked fine for me, but the semicolon didn't. And I tried receive, receiver and good, and they all failed. So there will be a general problem here to look at with all however many hundreds of short forms and short form derivatives it is to look through. It's going to be quite an interesting job. Um, I believe the problem is likely to be a deficiency in the table. Um, I'm not going to actually open up the table and spout techno babble to everybody. Um, but effectively, the way the uh, back translation Braille to print for short forms works is you have the word followed by an allowable set of characters before and after, which is based on the standing alone rule in UEB. And that set of characters is likely to be incorrect. And I'm going to have to just check that all through. James, it's Jen here. Oh, sure. sorry, Daphne. I think I just, I'll be Go quick. Ahead. I just wanted to say, um, going back to Crystal's question about PEF, you know, um, one thing is I do know is that if you send a file to RoboBraille, PEF is one of the options that you can get your file back if you so choose. That's right. And the reason for that is RoboBraille, if I remember, is based in a non-English speaking country. It's Norway, isn't it? James, it's Judy. Hi, um, Judy. I, I just had an occasion to check on PEF recently for another purpose. And it is still widely used in Scandinavia. Yeah, that's right. I, I explain Robo Braille, yeah. That's right, because it's Danish, I think. But I don't believe it's used much outside of Scandinavia. Yeah, that sounds about right. Hi, it's Mike here at Townsend. Um, Hi, Mike. It, it was developed particularly by those printer manufacturers, and that's uh, people like... Um, index and so forth and uh, Braille were particularly interested in it to get some um, braille formatted correctly on print output hard copy braille i think the ebrf is extending that idea and and um, we do need to get buy-in i would say from not only uh, printer manufacturers braille manufacturers of devices like the ones i'm using at the moment 
But also, I think authorities need to get behind it as well to give it a big push. And I don't know how um, widespread it is. I know it's being um, APH and folk over there are heading it up. Um, but I don't know if it's really being internationalised, A, within the English world, speaking world, but also B, is it crossing into Europe and Scandinavia? Does it have that wider buy-in? This is precisely why APH have contacted DAISY, um, because DAISY does have that international network. Yeah, DAISY would be a good group to yeah. get behind it, I would say. Yeah, exactly. But we do need to get, though, um, as Julia was saying, it's, it's used a lot in Scandinavia. Um, we need to get them on board, really, to see it yep. as a, a, an extra dimensioning of the, the concept that they've got. It did win an award in Leipzig, and I thought deservedly so. But it, it, it's now, what, 11 years, 12 years on? That's right. We have a couple more questions, uh, one from Debbie and then Sarah. So, Debbie, go ahead. Uh, great report, James, and uh, good to see everyone. Um, carrying on with Mike's question, uh, could you, what, with the uh, EBRF, um, my question is that uh, how did the spec get written? And um, again, to, to publish it further. So I think maybe this is something that ICEB could uh, continue with. Um, as well, so that you know we can move it forward. APH has done remarkable work uh, on it with William and Co, and uh, it's it's been a great service. But perhaps for the members, James, you might want to give some history as to because manufacturers also need to adopt it. So I, I got I think what the problem is people don't know where they need to hook in to it, perhaps, and that maybe that hasn't been outlined well enough for people to say, yeah, this is what I need to do. Join the meeting. I think you're absolutely right, Debbie. And the reason for that is it's still actually in draft as far as I'm aware. Um, so the final spec has not yet been finalized. Um, when I saw it last, there was all sorts of detail which still needed to be nailed down, um, you know, what to do with say footnotes or i don't know things like that it's still to be nailed down that's correct james it's still gathering information i would say so yes. it's not a standard that's ready to be disseminated that's right but i would but say I'm... that the the um, manufacturers and things need to be engaged at that point as well absolutely absolutely because i mean it's 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 one thing for example to run a really complicated spec, let's assume a really complicated spec on a, I don't know, a standard PC, which has got lots of memory and oodles of hard disk, etc., etc. It's quite another thing to run that same file through a limited memory, low, low uh, power CPU braille display. And, and so it's got to be achievable on as many devices as possible as well. APH is trying very hard to get the word out. At CSUN, they held a uh, meeting to tell the community about EBRF. And I'd say there were oh, probably close to 100 people in attendance. So if, if there's, they're doing a good job of making people aware. But you're right, James, it's still too soon. But I think they'll tell us when they declare it final and it's time for us all to start using it. 
I think definitely one to watch. We have a question from Sarah. Hi, everybody. It's Sarah Morley Wilkins from the Daisy Music Braille Project. Um, I thought I'd join in because I think James is referring to um, the, the liaison we've had so far with APH about their new format. Um, at the moment, we are particularly interested in it from the music rail perspective, but they haven't started work on that part of the um, proposal yet. Um, Daisy doesn't, it's not in Daisy's remit to look at rail standards particularly. So just to be clear that Daisy won't be taking a lead on what's in the proposal apart from our interest in the music braille side. However, lots of the DAISY members are, of course, using EPUB already for their accessible publishing. And certainly um, SBS in Zurich have written to William to say, well, how, how and why is um, EBRF going to be different from the braille rendition that we're talking about for EPUB? Um, because if we can have Unicode braille characters in EPUB, um, built on an existing standard and it could be supported by existing playback systems, why is there a need for EBRF2? So if I if we find out any more or we have an opportunity to influence what they do with Music Braille, we will, of course, but I definitely think it's um, it's for Braille specialists to keep in touch with that, really. Thank you, Sarah. Yes, that's a very interesting point and one that has been raised before um, I've heard it too um, why not just put braille characters into either an EPUB or for example an HTML file and there are I think reasons for it um, and it would be best if APH came out with them. Uh, James Ivan has a sound raised go ahead Ivan. Oh, can you, hello, can you, can, you can you hear me? Yes. Am I unmuted? You are. You're unmuted. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Um, I wanted just to point out, and um, thank you for uh, this um, this very interesting topic. And I was thinking on, about the manufacturers, not only in embossers or reversible of Braille's, but also other kind of devices like like um, Braille keyboards that they, that they might be thinking about. Um, um, Hayball, Orbit, there are, they do develop keyboards themselves, even if they don't have any reversible Braille. That might be interesting also to approach to them so they can try and um, keep up with the latest Lilloid table. And the other thing is I was thinking about how um, can any ordinary uh, or just regular user try to contribute? Is it doable to get to modify or suggest or test the um, Lidloid table for any particular user, apart from just getting some tests and see the errors. Can they uh, get the tables? Can they practice? Can they try and tweak them, see how they go? Uh, is it easy, easily doable, or does it need a particular programming um, knowledge about it? Okay, um, I'll take that one bit at a time. Um, Orbit Research 
and Habel were on the list of manufacturers which we contacted about Liblui, so they are definitely in the loop, which is good news. Uh, the second part of your question, can anybody contribute to Liblui? On the one hand, yes, because it's open source. Uh, on the other hand, there is a fair bit of knowledge you need to learn, um, particularly about, if I can use it, the version control software uh, suite, which is called GitHub. Um, if you're familiar with GitHub, you'll have no trouble. If you're not familiar with GitHub, there's a bit of a learning curve there. Um, but the actual tables themselves, I'll give you an, a really easy rule to show you the kind of thing uh, that we have as an easy rule in Liblui. Let's take word, but, one, two. Now that basically means the word but is a whole word is translated to braille dots one, two. It's, that's pretty straightforward. But on the other hand, you get some very complicated rules um, involving strings of characters which may occur before, after, or both. Uh, and yeah, you can do all sorts of complicated Wizzo things. So yeah, read the documentation and by all means, enjoy. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Any other questions or shall I move on? May, may I ask you another one? Go on, Mike. Thank you very much. In 2020, as my sharp memory recalls, you and your good colleagues talked about the possibility of approaching manufacturers to make some sort of contribution financially to Lib Louis. Was anything done about this and how generous have manufacturers been? That's question. a very good question there, Mike. And I can tell you that we did include a paragraph about that in the letter that was sent out to everyone. I am not at all uh, aware of any financial contribution. That doesn't mean to say it hasn't happened. It's simply because we directed people to the donations page on the Liblui website. And of course, I have no idea how much goes into that. But we did at least try. <laughs> and we have a question from Stuart, or a hand raised at least, Stuart. Hi there, thank you. Uh, hi, James. Um, hi, Stuart. Really great presentation, and uh, thank you for all the work you're doing. Just in relation to uh, Hable, I can report that they, yeah, they're very keen to have the latest Liblui on their devices. They're releasing updates about every eight weeks, and we're working very closely with them. I'm speaking to them probably twice weekly um, and testing um, their pre-releases as well. So if there's any issues with Liblui on Hable, please do feed it back to me. Um, we'd be very happy to, to chat with them. And I know that um, I think RNAB have a, a similar uh, testing uh, arrangement with Hable, James, so you may be doing that already. But if I can help at all, please let me know. Wonderful. And, and Stuart, it, it, likewise, if you find any errors which are genuine table errors, please pass them on. Yeah, I'll do that. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, final opportunity. Any questions on the report? Or I am moving on. Jordy uh, has a question. Jordy has a question. Hi, James. Excellent report. Um, really thorough. Thank you. I wondered about, we're talking about Liblui tables, and um, this sort of 
leads to the work that we're going to be doing tomorrow in resolutions, particularly around shorthand braille codes and documenting their, their history and things like that. Wondering about whether it's feasible for those braille enthusiasts who are interested to make a Liblui table in, for example, grade three braille or the braille user-oriented code UOC. Um, for those that are interested, a friend of mine, uh, Ben Van Poppel, made some very good inroads in into that, but it was kind of before Liblui got to the standard that it is that it is now. What's your feeling around that? Um, it is definitely possible, and I can tell you it is well on the way. Um, I have seen a very good effort at a grade three that? braille table for Lib Louie. Mm. Um, now, we can talk about grade three tomorrow, perhaps, but one of the limitations of grade three is it's not really capable of being back translated. So from print to braille, not a problem. From braille to print, definitely a problem um, but work is definitely underway um, I think the guy's name is Boer in Denmark uh, who's been working on that um, BUOC it would certainly be possible to to write a table because it's much less complicated a system than grade three thank you very good James Christo not not a question, but something I think needs some attention around Lib Louis. Um, I think there are two major drawbacks to make it more usable. The one is lack of formatting, and the other one is lack of a user interface. You know, it's, it's very nice to have a free Braille translator, but it's not that usable for individuals or even for Braille producers. It's, it's very much um, like a backroom application. It's used by the software and also by, by, by hardware, um, but not really by individuals, except, of course, we, you know, in, in, in something like, um, uh, uh, you know, Braille Blaster. There is, there is a Braille Blaster, but um, for you know, the last time I looked, uh, you were very restricted as to which tables, you, uh, which languages, which tables you can use. Um, yes. Formatting, there is the UTDML uh, thing. I don't know if you've played around with it, but it, it looks like a, a scary and a dirty process to try and install that thing on Windows. Um, yes. I haven't played with the UTDML side. I was going to mention that. Um, the UTDML, uh, I, I absolutely forget what it stands for, um, but it is basically the formatting side. Um, and it is supposed to be a companion to Lim Louie to, to do all that stuff. I didn't catch the, the, the second thing that you said it lacks, Christo. Yeah, that's the user interface, which is sort of partially provided by uh braille blaster ah yes 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 but, you know, we can't use it for anything else here than for english yes yes so that would be something to take up with the lib louis yes. people themselves um and, there and, to is make, a... and to make utdml a bit cleaner to use yes use. yes so i would recommend you you take that up with um so 
Yeah, James, we've been working trying to get them to take an interest in formatting and so forth, and there's not that great deal of interest amongst the group to do it. And I, as a publisher, if I put my publishing hat on, there's a lot of intervention to be done. We lo- we use LibLouis to make the basic Braille translation, but basically the formatter is ours. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Does RNIB use it, LibLouis, and does it have a formatter? Our main transcription service uses Duxbury. All right. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure about all the automated stuff. What, but but what it could to... be made much more friendly, even with some basic work on it. But it, it, it's a project that's a, it, a, an interest group supports the project. And, of course, we try and help to make it in, to improve it. Uh, but if the basic core group are not much interested in formatting, it seems quite hard to persuade them, I would say. I take your point, Mike. Um, on the other hand, I did notice that a new version was released reasonably recently. So there is some interest, but how much oh, right, interest, okay. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. So we, we've tried to persuade them anyway, but uh, so eventually we just do it ourselves. Yeah, thank you. I, yeah. I don't know if that sort of expertise could be shared, really. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. The, mm. the topic of Braille formatting, I think the only thing that we internationally agree on is how to do an ordinary paragraph by indenting the first line by two. Oh, sentences. great, yeah. That's about the only thing that we agree on how to do. You know, page numbers get moved about, headings get blank lines or no blank lines. Those those lines of dots two five or not lines of two five. And as to footnotes and bulleted lists, let's not even get started. Thank you. I have three questions that I'd like to pose to this meeting um, to kind of get a feel of your opinion about them. Um, the first two relate to Liblui, and the second one is a, is a, is a is something that uh, our president Judy has mentioned to me. Um, I would also raise this on the. ICEB Braille technology list to, uh, as I know, there are some people not at this meeting who are observers on the list and uh, all opinions are welcome. So the first one is the issue of what we call in UEB spaced digits. So if you have, for example, a telephone number, I'm going to give the RNIB telephone number 0303 123 9999. You can put the number sign or numeric indicator at the beginning. And then where I grouped those numbers, you can write just a single dot five between the group. So numeric indicator JCJC dot five ABC dot five IIII. Now in LibLouis, if it spots two digits with a space between, it will do that. Now, my question is, is that a good idea or should we change it to be more like what, for example, Duxbury does and only include the spaced digit if it is a no-break space character between those digits? Now, a no-break space character is a special kind of space Um, You can get one in Microsoft Word by pressing Shift, Control and Space. 
it's a different actual character. It's still invisible on the screen, um, but it does mean those numbers will not be split across a line in print. And it does mean they are therefore part of the same number. Any thoughts, anyone? Good or bad idea to restrict the space digits to a no-break space only? James, this is Jen. Jen. So you just answered something that I was trying to figure out why this kept happening because I had a file name that had numbers in it that were intentionally like separated by spaces and I could not for the life of me get rid of the dot five because, the one. right? It, it And I was like, why is this happening? Like there's a space, but it's not. And I just... I didn't have time to kind of think it through at the time, but so, I mean, I like the fact that it knows to do that, but there's times where numbers are spaced where they're really not meant to be grouped together. And this was a, it was a file for, it was the year and then a file, like the number of a, it was like a, you know, version two or whatever, and there was no V. So I don't know. I, I mean, I don't feel strongly about it, but I, I certainly, there are times where LibLui is going to apply that or does apply it. And it, it changes how the number it kind of represents itself, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, yes. I think restricting the dot five to to this hard space is a good idea because it then gives you freedom, the option to decide how you want it to appear in Braille. Thank you, Christo. Anyone else? James, it's Edward from the United Kingdom. Hello, Ed. Um, I have a, I'm, I'm a transcriber um, in work and out of work. And I, I don't want to sound dull and boring, but I can see both sides working on working for this. I think it's good that it doesn't spread over a line. I think the dot five idea is, is a good thing. But I'm also thinking of a lot of people who I transcribe Braille for are they're sort of new to Braille. And since UEB has come in, there's been a real, for some, resistance to change. I think anything to make it easier for people, unnecessary dots, unnecessary characters, wherever necessarily should be considered. Because even things like that, I, I braille stuff out for people. I don't change what is written on the screen to make it easier for them. I braille what is exactly there unless I'm requested to do so. I and mean, if I do something like that, I get a lot of hassle. Well, why have you left this in? Why have, you, why have you done this kind of thing? And people get very confused. And if it's a telephone number, if there's random dots, people with less sensitive touch, people who are newer to Braille could get very confused by it. So I think, I, without sounding like a, a complete cop-out here, I think there's good and I think there's bad points to this. But I like the idea of a virtual, can we call it the virtual space? I think that would be ideal for this. Yeah, the no breaking space. I think I would support the non breaking space, James, and I feel frustrated like Jen with that comma. Dot, sorry, not a dot five that appears. It's a yeah. bit of a nuisance. Yeah. You had to insert a hyphen to, to thwart Yeah, it. that's the one. You have to do it. You have to put something else there. Um, in, in fact, Mike, it was, it was the British postcodes that kind of sparked me thinking about this. Um, if you have a postcode, oh, yes. oh I don't know, yeah, RNIB I, I postcode, yeah. P, yeah. Papa Echo 1 space 1 Yankee November, you get dot, you got A.5A, which just does not look it right. Does, it does. It appears, yeah. It's not right. the way we do things in the UK. No, but non-breaking spaces would be restricting it to that would be a good exactly idea. Exactly, that case. So coming to your, coming to your comment, Ed, um, 
if we did change it so that only the non-breaking space does this, it would mean if you use ordinary spaces in your telephone numbers, you would get numeric indicator, blah, 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 space, numeric indicator, blah, 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 space, etc. Which I think goes to your point about it's easier to read for some people. And it's probably what they would expect, I think, Ed. So James, the last time, the, the last time I quizzed a, a, a UK telephone directory, they always have to take my, an example of my own code, Ma Manchester area code 0161-678. Okay, now, I don't so... know whether this just muddies your waters or not. If it's printed like that, I would think it should be browned like that. Exactly I right. I would agree. Exactly right. So we are not changing. If there is a hyphen there, the hyphen will come out. Absolutely right. No question. The point is, if there is no hyphen, if it's just got a space, there's lots of ways that people write phone numbers these days. Sometimes a great long string of digits, sometimes grouped with hyphens, sometimes grouped with spaces, sometimes with brackets, plus signs and goodness knows else what. And we have to kind of respect what characters are there um, but it's this possible problem of overuse of the uh no break or sorry the the, the spaced digit that, that, that i'm getting at james we don't sorry. like the dot five uh, sorry, so, have somebody a... else spoke yes yeah. we have a couple of hands here um hey, it's david Spidey, james oh hello uh, david how are you hello. i'm fine thank you i i was just wondering my vague i really know very little about live louis at all but my understanding was that it was really just for text is that still the case it doesn't really deal with mathematics and technical stuff or, or does it now there is very much a project to try and improve the mathematical abilities of live louis and certainly as i speak i know that all the actual symbols uh, things like your plus and minus and your Greek letters and your not equals and greater than equal to and all that kind of stuff are included. The The difficulty comes with, if I could say, the mathematical kind of furniture, um, which would be fractions and yeah. square roots and powers and subscripts, where there's all sorts of things, which I'm guessing we'll probably talk about later on in Clive's session. Um, that does need improving. But it's not going to be able to translate uh, complicated mathematical material such in, in the way that Duxbury can at the moment if it's written in math type. No, no. no. So you, you would need to use uh, something like the UTDML system or something else. Um, there was a lot of talk about uh, using MathML as the input source. Okay. And we have uh, four hands raised here, James. Wow, so let's get Jennifer, through these four hands. Mark, yes. more oh. so Join the meeting. Been, Jennifer's been waiting there. Go ahead, Jennifer. Um, I wanted to agree that uh, restricting the dot five to the, the non-breaking space is a good idea. And I wanted to do so by making the point that LibLui comes into play for more than just document translation. It also comes into play for interface with a computer device and such. So if you're using a Braille display and you're looking at a list of files, you're trying to figure out 
how many files are in the list, for example, your file may end with the number and then the, then the list information starts. It's extremely yeah. annoying and yeah. very mm -hmm. difficult to yeah. decipher all yeah. of that. A similar one that I was told about is if you have a date followed by a time, they are yes. actually two different things, but LibLouis will currently combine them. So that's certainly so far in the room three definite fours, no against. <laughs> uh, Not Debbie. That that's a scientific pool. <laughs> yes, Debbie. Uh, James, I'm adding my vote to the uh, restricting it to the non-breaking space. Um, for new readers or people who are using new Braille devices, that dot five, you know, it's you could miss it, and it's just you know when you don't have a line above or below that to assist the reader to really understand where they are in the. So when you're transitioning from hard copy for some that mm. I've worked with, and then moving to a braille display, that dot five can really cause havoc. They at least the space is clear. My favorite is hyphens. It makes it absolutely clear. But you know what? I think, you know, for the for the new reader, I think it's yeah, let's stay with the dot five for non breaking. Thank you. James, this is Natalie. I would just Natalie. agree with that because uh, yeah, the, the the big issue with people learning Braille is that the dot five can be confused with an A or a dot dot one. Okay. Yeah. Any last comments? And I shall move yes, on to Yes, we have Robert two. and then Kathy. So, Robert. Robert. Hello. Um, my concern that may be overlooked here is I'm a Braille transcription company, and a lot of books come in that have uh, no digital copy. So, I have to run OCR on them. And yep. if you run OCR, I'm going to get hard spaces wherever your non-breaking space would be. Um, I just sure. want to put out there that if you adopt this as a solution for your LibLui, um, somehow we have to get it out to people that they have to get those spaces into non-breaking before they translate their file. So, so that would apply if the numbers are actually grouped. Um, it's sound typography and there's, I believe, a lot of work that needs to be done widespread particularly to non-Braille geeks, uh, if I can use that term, um, about sound typography. You go and talk to your average word user and say, how do you put a heading in your document? And they'll say, oh, I just click bold and I click grow font and there you go. That is not a heading, as we all know. Um, and, and likewise, use of the non-break space, chapter non-break space, three, telephone, 0303 non-break space 123 it's sound typography and i think there's a huge amount of education that needs to be done in that area yes because if you change that that character it's much like when um people pull their documents into word and they have the curly braces um the curly parentheses allowed smart quotes and you it are then changes, nicely on to my second point <laughs> it, it changes all that wonderful uh, translation that occurs if they don't know how to change them to straight oh, yeah. quotes to get the standard input. Um, oh, so yeah. that's that was my only concern is that we we have some way to articulate that in in this to, to the Braille community. Thank you. Let's have Kathy. one more question on this topic, and that will. I be need it. to move on. Yeah. 
Was it Kathy? Yes, Kathy had her hand raised. Right. Yes, it was. Uh, yes, I've now unmuted. I just want to reinforce that it is so important to have choice. I think the current situation is there's no choice from the transcript from the transcriber perspective. It's a dot five regardless of the situation. So whatever way you have. The importer has to have a choice to say, I want the dot five or I don't want the dot five. And this is giving choice is to use the non-break space. That's a really good point. Thank you, everyone. I really appreciate your thoughts on that one. May I move quickly to my second question, um, which, Robert, you've kindly led me on to very neatly, which is the apostrophe and yes, I know we did some work on this in, in, in UEB land um, in 2019, which is incredibly appropriate because the Unicode is 2019, um, but that's a different base of numbers. So let's let that slip gently under the carpet. My question is, when back translating from Braille to print and you type a dot three, would you like to see an ordinary straight 0027 kind of apostrophe, which is what actually happens when you press the key on the keyboard? Or would you like to see the right curly quote Unicode 2019? The reason I asked the question is because LibLouis currently gives you a mixture. Any thoughts, anyone? I'd like to see 0027. I would as well, because if that's what you're entering in Braille, that's if I wanted a right curly quote, I would enter a right curly quote in Braille. This is um, how do you then? I mean, um, because I'm married to a graphic designer who always insists on the right curly quote, um, because the straight one is the prime symbol, and you know, used for like feet and you know the, the prime symbol at least in print so it's more akin to the prime symbol the prime symbol actually is another code it's 20 i know but i'm saying 20, what it looks like 30 is it yeah what i'm looking at 2032 we haven't got there yet yeah. what i'm saying is what it looks like is that sure. a straight quote yes 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 as someone who's a site a transcriber who has worked intensively on sorting out the whole quote and apostrophe and how to ensure uh, using Duxbury ensure it. I would I would prefer the zero zero two seven for the apostrophe that you have a literal back translation that if if the dot three it's a zero zero two seven if it's a single quote it back translates as the single quote as the curly as the curly one. I I work on that with Duxbury with the forward translation. I always make sure that all all my apostrophes in the print copy are the straight ones, and it, it gives me a perfect translation. Um, so, and for forward translation, if, if it's a quote, it's the you know the curly ones or the smart quotes. If it's an apostrophe, it's always straight. I get perfect translation with my quotes and apostrophe that way. So, I think the back translation is. Um, should, follow should be suit. the same. Yes. Really good point there. Really good point there, Kathy. One of the points of UEB, um, I believe it's one of the founding principles, is it should have a, 
100% accuracy rate when you translate from print back to braille and back to print again. And that would ensure that, yes. Thank you. Any final comments about that one? Otherwise, I'm going to start my final question, which James, is something. James, this is Robert again. Um, my son is working on a program for Apple. And part of the reason we got so involved in the quotes is because for the technical code, it is very important that literal strings come out with character to character mapping correctly. My son has a couple points he'd like to mention. Yeah, go for it quickly, yeah. Uh, can you hear me? Uh, you're a little bit distant. Can you come closer? Can you hear me now? Go for it. Uh, well, I if it were me, I would say that I'd prefer the, the straight quote simply because as far as I know, there is no, there is no direct like UEB equivalent for a that that curled quote and as far as I know Unicode included that curled quote simply for I think as you said earlier typographical correctness like that's what it's meant to be used but some people use it and the other reason I would think that I would stick to the straight quote is because almost every computer system We'll have a straight quote, but sometimes on some devices, because the number is separate, it may not even render it correctly, even mm. though the number is there. Mm. So, mm. Thank you. So I'm, I'm getting a strong feeling from the room that you would like the straight 0027 coming back. That's wonderful. Thank you, folks. And just in my last few minutes, I'd like to... Um, introduce a question that our president Judy has raised, which is not to do with Lib Bluey, but may also impact on Lib Bluey in a slightly different way. And that is the USA computer code uh, is still used by braille readers on braille displays. And there is a slight problem that Although the standard ASCII characters from space to tilde, or if you like 32 to 126, or if you prefer hex 0020 to 007E, are pretty well specified, other characters like accented characters, ellipsis, bullet point, uh, copyright symbol, all those other wonderful things are not so well standardized across different screen readers. So I was just testing this the other day and I typed in uh, an ellipsis, you know, dot, dot, dot. And it's one character 2026 in Unicode. And in one screen reader, I think it came out as dots two and seven. On another screen reader, it came out as dots one, two, three, five, six, eight, which is radically different. So is there a piece of work that someone should do to try and standardize what the 8-dot computer code is? Now, part of the problem, I think, is because some implementations of the old 8-dot computer code go back to MS-DOS days, where there only were 100, uh, 256 characters, and they were kind of commuted and so on. And then we transferred to a different code page and it was windows and all sorts of 
trauma came with the character set there and some things got adjusted and some things didn't and some of them are fairly arbitrary anyway and da 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 so is there a piece of work do we think that should be done to try and standardize the representation of characters beyond the standard basic ascii set question There's no hands raised at this time. <laughs> Stun silence. Well, I, I will speak to it since Go I for it, Judy. Yes, since I, it. Since I raised it. it. I I really think there should be some kind when we, we have an alphabet, we have uh, other symbols that we all agree on, but we don't we have there are so many symbols in the 128 to 255 range. That it's a wild west out there, and I'm sorry for the American reference, but it's it's not it's really not very well organized at all. And I really think that we need to have a standard for the 128 to 255 that are used on braille displays. I don't use my braille display with contracted braille. I never do, and I probably never will. So I do use that 255 character set. Maybe some people don't and never see it and don't know about this and don't care, but I do care. And I would, when I switch to NVDA, I see different characters and I switch to JAWS, I see different characters and I switch to narrator, I see different characters. That really shouldn't be, in my opinion. So uh, I was new it as MIT code. Um, right at the very beginning. And I don't know if MIT had some kind of governance over the, the, the representation. And of course, in those days, it wasn't really much eight dot braille, but uh, now we have it. And I know in, um, in UK under the old um, Bork, we did start to look at this one, but I don't think it got very far. And I'm with you, Judy, it should be standardized, but uh, are we the group to standardize it? It's a very nobody else wants to do it. Why not? Yeah. What about I mean, the logical groups, as as I would see it, would either be ICEB with the blessing of Banner or Banner itself. Well, Banner looked into this once before, and uh, I don't think we got very far with it either. And what we did, I wasn't able to manage to convince people that there were differences in the way screen readers manage these codes because they made it up. I do believe, though, that there is an ISO standard on 8.braille. I wrote a paper Oh, is that right? I believe so. And I could actually dig up so the It number. doesn't just impact Braille displays, actually. It does impact printers. And if you send some out True. to certain printers, yes, you'll get different results. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I think would. this would be really an... This really would be an interesting thing to pursue and and it sounds like there's some demand can we hear from observers are there any is there any observer out there who has encountered this issue or has an interest and in, cares hanif has a hand raised oh thank you hanif hi there um it's hanif so um, I've actually encountered the same problem and it's annoying because you also have to now input the same character and so you get really confused and, and I, I've had a situation where I felt really dumb 
um, because I, I could swear that I just entered the same character uh, two days back on, on, on a different device. And I was like, what's wrong with me? Am I, am I aging very quickly or <laughs> what's going on? So I would, I would definitely uh, support that. And I think maybe uh, we should start and try and hunt down the ISO standard. And, um, but yeah, standardizing would be something I would support as a Braille user. Thank you. Thank you, Hanif. We have three I, I would have, yeah, I would have thought that standardization would be great. I can remember in the early days of uh, translation uh, with Duxbury and there were other uh, software around being totally amazed that the same output was coming on the embosser, not realizing it was just plain ASCII. And it was because they were using the same code. Um, and I was just, oh, it's the same. That's great. You know, so yeah, it definitely should be standardized. Whether this is the right body to do it, I don't know, James. Thank you. Terry Ann has a hand raised. Yes, um, I'm gonna preface what I'm gonna, about to say uh, by saying that I am uh, definitely a newbie to this arena. Um, and so I know enough to be very dangerous. But uh, what limited experience I have had, uh, and I think somebody just brought it up, the point of not only um, Braille output, but, but input. I, I just think there has to be a standardization um, with, with this UEB code. And um would it help to address and you know if i'm going far afield here please forgive me would it help to address the comments that i have heard from a number of braille users who say i don't like ueb because i don't understand these things and i use this um this braille display and i try to put this character in and it doesn't work and i but I try it on another uh, Braille display and I can make it, you know, read the way I intend for it to. I'm thinking of um, like the at symbol. It's not, it's not consistent. And this may or may not be directly what you're referring to here. So forgive me. But, but the point is, yes, I really think there should be a standardization and that might help to, um, to solve a whole multitude of, of issues in the long run. Who's gonna do it? I, I have no clue about that, but I think it needs to be addressed, yes. Thank you. Is there still any life left in the World Braille Council? Yeah. Because that seems to be, you know, a body like that would have to do standardization because this, would not be restricted to the English world. That's a really good point, Christo. And um, I will again write to um, somebody to do doing the to do um, to do me to write to um, Martine and find out where things stand. Last I knew, they couldn't get anybody to be chair, and uh, I think they've asked everybody in the world to be chair, and now everyone has declined. Um, but just for the record, let's go back to the, it's, it's ISO standard 11548 part one and part two. 
So if anybody's really interested in, in the ISA released a standard defining the characters for eight dot braille for Latin based character sets. 11548 parts one and two are entitled communication aids for blind persons, identifiers, names, and assignment to coded character sets for eight dot braille characters. That's wonderful, thank you. So, Madam President, we are bang on 2022. We are, in fact, it is true indeed. So, we Just will. <laughs> we will adjourn uh, at the moment, take our 10-minute uh, break, and uh, Jen will see you back here at 5.30. Oh, 21.30, everything 30. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Enjoy your dinner. Thank you. Oops. Oops. Good evening. You are listening to live coverage of the Midterm Executive Committee meeting of the International Council on English Braille. My name is Matthew Horsepool. I uh, do apologise, just dealing with a slight uh, technical problem there, but I think we are all sorted now. And uh, joining me on the stream once again is Jen Golden. Jen, uh, thanks for popping over so quickly. Uh, <laughs> I was organized was this time. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't disorganized last time. Um, that was a fun session. I felt like for a technical session, that was surprisingly easy to follow. Yeah, I think it, it I mean, as technical as it, like you said, right, as technical as it was, it dealt with issues that most Braille readers, I think, or transcribers will have experienced or dealt with. So I think that helped it maybe feel a little less technical. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's there's technical and then there's technical, isn't there? Like, it was technical, but at a high enough level and based on, I mean, not even just transcribers, but users. You know, most users have encountered some of the LibLui problems that we were talking about. So it sounded less like a LibLui problem and more like just a problem that everybody knows about that someone's taking the time to solve. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, it's a, a great opportunity where we can, you know, where we can hear from people who wouldn't necessarily, you know, otherwise get a chance to, to provide their input. Mm. Or know that they could, you know, anybody can obviously contact James or, you know, contact us, but people may just not know. Yeah, and it was good to have that reinforced, wasn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, LibLui um, in particular is an open source program. I mean, we've talked on this stream in the past, on this podcast in the past about how you know you need to be nominated by your Braille authority, and that's true for ICEB stuff. But LibLui is just a piece of software. I mean, if you want to go to GitHub and create an account and you know do your thing, then then sure, you don't need ICEB's permission to do that. I mean, it'd be nice if you talked to us just so we didn't duplicate effort. But I mean, that's the extent Absolutely. of it, right? Yeah, and I think I mean I know this is a little off to off topic, but even just in terms of you know, having your Braille authority nominate you for certain committees, especially when it comes to the CMC, we, we don't, we don't reject people. Like we want as many people as possible, right? It's just that the request comes through your local Braille authority. So just in case anyone was worried that it was like a big long process where you need references and background checks, it's, it's not like that at all. No, 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 it isn't. No. 
the Braille Authority gets the uh, gets the references first. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we have ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a certain element of truth in that. I mean, certainly within the UK, if you want to become part of the CMC, we want to know why you want to become part of the CMC because what you yes. don't want, and it, it's not it's not about um, necessarily rejecting people it's about finding the right people because you might end up with what you don't want on these lists is lots of chatter right so you want people who actually yes. know enough about the code in order to um in order to to contribute uh, positively yeah constructively sure. whereas with lib louis well i mean <laughs> you'll know for yourself whether you understand the code when you start reading it or not i mean james uh, gave some very good examples of what lib louis code looks like but believe me um I've I've read Liblui Braille tables, and although they sound simple, when you actually get to reading them and you think, hang on, why is that rule written like that? And there must be a reason why it's written in that way, but I can't quite figure out why. And yeah, you um you need a certain mindset, I think, to start working on Braille tables. Yeah, you do need to be very detail-oriented because you have to look at a whole bunch of different aspects of here's the symbol, here's what it looks like you know, here's the, the dot combinations, here's this, here's that. And so, you know, I, when I started helping James, he gave me a little bit of a tutorial on exactly what he needed. And the other thing too, is if you choose to join the Lib Louie list, I mean, that's absolutely, if that's your cup of tea, I, I was on it for a little while because I thought it would be really, I wanted to get more involved in the coding side of things. But because again, it's people all over the world, it's, I found there was quite a lot of, I don't want to call it chatter because I'm not saying that it wasn't valuable or important, but just, just so you know, if you, if you sign up for that list, it, at the time anyway, there was, there's a lot of traffic. So I'm not, again, it, very useful, valuable traffic, but just expect that there'll probably be a lot of uh, emails going back and forth. Interestingly, the traffic seems to have gone down. I'm on that list. Oh, has it? And, oh, okay. Uh, well, I, I haven't seen any traffic for ages, but I think it goes both ways you'll have no traffic for ages and then somebody will ask a question and the question may be about how to write a table the question may be about whether a table exists the question may be about the code base of liblui itself you know okay i've written a table and it's supposed to work but there's a bug in the interpreter which means it's not working properly and then i mean the floodgates open at that point right because yes. people then start to answer the question and people may not have properly understood the question that was asked or it may spark another question or it may spark a whole load of bug reports and yeah it, it can get very busy very quickly I might have just happened to join it at a time where that was going on. So, <laughs> so uh, my apologies to, you know, anyone who feels I may have misrepresented that list. So <laughs> let's, let's uh, clear that up. Mm. Interesting discussion at the end there about the US computer braille table. That's not a discussion I was expecting to have tonight. Yeah, I think it's, I, I mean, I didn't know that we were going to have that discussion necessarily either. And I, I find it interesting. I think some of this is maybe age age dependent, just in the sense that if you're someone who's really young and you learned UEB and you didn't really learn other codes prior to that, you may not even really be familiar with with this kind of thing. And I guess, you know, there are times, right, where you enter something in a search field. I find it happening less and less, at least on the stuff that I'm using, where I actually have to, you know, of course, I because of the age that I am, I, I do know the computer code and, you know, eight daughter, you know, those, those other kinds of things, but I'm finding less and like that. I, I have to call it to mind less and less. So, uh, you know, I agree that 
having a standard is good, especially if people are finding this an issue, you mm. know, in other parts of the world or on different devices. So I'm always up for, you know, figuring out how to do that. Yeah, should it be ICEB? You know, Should it be Banner since it's Banner's code? <laughs> well, there is that. I almost made a comment about, I don't know, maybe the current Banner chair might entertain this dis- you know, this discussion if you uh, bring it up with her. <laughs> yes. But I, I don't know. I mean, Banner's got a lot on its plate right now as well. So, you know, is this something that, that we would re- we would want to tackle? I'm not really sure. So where does it belong? I think we need more discussion, but definitely, it was definitely good to hear, you know, what other people are thinking about mm. this. Well, I feel like what may happen, I mean, it hasn't happened yet, but it might happen eventually is a standard may just develop organically because the screen reader manufacturers, if we don't do it, you know, may just decide, well, hang on, this is what the users are wanting it to do. So we'll just all do it. And gradually we'll sort of just end up with a standard anyway, where everybody ends up doing the same thing. Sort of that, that whole default thing. Yeah. And, and, um, Hanif had provided a link, which then actually I was going to mention it, but Judy was starting to read about the, you know, just at the end there before we had the break. So there is, there is something out there, right? I I was sort of getting ready to jump on here. So I admit that it didn't have my full attention, but um, definitely good for us to see what's already out there before we reinvent the wheel. Hmm. Well, at half past, the time flies when you're having fun. I need to let Jen go and um, start the next part of the meeting. So thank you very much, Jen. We will see you um, just at the end of the next bit. The next bit is Clive Lansing's UEB uh, CMC technology, uh, or not technology, technical committee report. Um, As we said, Clive has not actually been part of the technical committee for very long. He's certainly not been the chair for very long. So uh, it will be really interesting to see what he has to say. We may not, in fact, be reporting on what's happened. We may, in fact, be sort of looking to the future of what is going to happen. And that will be a very interesting uh, discussion there. Well, hello, everyone. It looks like we've got a bunch of people here. So I and it's been... Well, maybe we'll just wait another minute or so. Um, <clears throat> we're going to, maybe I'll just do this intro kind of slowly just to give people, a, you know, a little bit of extra time in case anyone went to get a snack or feed a dog or something like that. Um, the next sort of the rest of today's meeting, we are going to be talking about more UEB code stuff, or we're going to be focusing on the technical Uh, aspects of the code and so we uh do we have clive are you here i checked the participant list yes i'm here we've got clive lovely so all right i'm going to hand things over to to clive and um he's going to take it from there so over to you oh well okay good morning good afternoon uh even good evening and maybe even good night if someone is really being kept up late. Uh, I'm Clive Lansing, and uh, I'm the chair of this committee, um, Technical Technical Materials Committee that we kind of loosely know it as. And I've had this role for nearly three months. um, And this is our first face-to-face meeting, even in a virtual sort of sense. So I just want to say a few words of Um, introduction. I know UEB is now very much embedded in the Braille that we use every day uh, in most, if not all, English-speaking countries. 
But I'm aware that when it comes to technical materials uh, and in my own background as a qualified electrical engineer and a software developer most of my life, um, I sort of know this from personal experience that we still have some work to do to get UEB to the point where it is fully accepted by technical people as a viable code to use in technical materials. So in taking on this role, my aim is to do what I can to help reach that objective. Um, I think the reality is that it's already sort of happened and since I've uh, started on this, there will always be those who I think will want to make the comparison between UEB and Nemeth when it comes to technical materials. Now, uh, personally, I don't much mind that, but I don't think it's a fair comparison because I think Nemeth was designed from the ground up to be optimized for maths and technical materials. But UEB was designed from the ground up to handle a wide range of reading materials. And at the time it was developed, there was a fundamental goal that the transition from traditional forms of Braille uh, to UEB needed to be as painless as possible. And obviously there was uh, good reasons for that. People knew that they didn't, that, that uh, readers would rebel if, if learning UEB was going to be too hard. So I think that sets the course for UEB in a, in a different way to Nemeth. Um, to me, it is important that anyone using UEB in their everyday reading, um, but who is interested in high level uh, technical materials, you ought to be able to read those materials um, now that may need that mean that you have to learn some new symbols, of course, but you ought to be able to do that rather than kind of stepping back from what you know and learning a rather different code. So I think we're all agreed that UEB needs to cope with a wide range of materials, but that must include technical materials. And really, we've already done, we've already gone a long way uh, towards that. But it's the job of this committee to identify those pain points that are still there, um, the problems that are really bothering people who work in this field, and make the best decisions that we can to resolve um, those problems so UEB can continue to develop. Um, I do need to make it clear that uh, from the outset, really, that um, although I'm a Braille reader and a fan of UEB, I'm really not an expert. Um, and whenever I open documents like the, the rules or the guidelines for technical materials, I'm very quickly reminded just how much I admire the people who have made it their business to become experts in this field. There's just so many details um, to think about that most of us don't really um, grapple with. Um, and when we have a face-to-face -face meeting like this one, we know that we are in the good company of uh, numerous um, experts who just have so much to offer. So I'm hoping that we'll hear from some of them today. Um, since taking on this role, we've had a number of introductions from committee members and uh, a number of observers. Um, and, with, and various comments have been made regarding what people feel are matters of priority to be addressed. I, I refer to them as pain points. 
um, earlier, whatever we call them. And I'm pleased in a way that there doesn't seem to be a lot of disagreement. There seems to be some agreement, at least around the important issues that we need to get um, get to grips with. So I'm going to go through through them. Uh, they're not in any particular order of priority, and I'll just quickly um, uh, mention these ones that we have been asked to uh, take a look at. Um, the first is um, when and where to use grade one. Uh, um, indicators um, with a view to improving uh, consistency and providing more examples to illustrate different situations. Another issue is the um, appropriateness of the current rule, which states that a space should be inserted between a function and a lowercase variable. Now, I think this must refer, I've just had a and when I had a quick look at the guidelines for technical materials, I found rule 9.3 in there. Uh, and I, so I suspect that's um, the one. Uh, and there are other examples there of um, where a space uh, should be inserted where I presume no space exists in the print. And um, we haven't discussed this one in detail, but I think when we do, we'll be facing the old chestnut of wanting to reflect the print, but still wanting to help the Braille reader in a way that perhaps isn't present in the print. So um, I'll be looking forward to that discussion. Um, there is a need to complete section 1.8 on omissions. Um, personally, I haven't looked at that uh, in any way at all so far. Uh, it's just on the list. And one theme that has come through rather strongly in the comments so far is that people would like more examples in the guidelines to illustrate what to do in different situations. Even though a design goal of UEB is to produce Braille where the meaning is unambiguous, um, several people have commented that the need to make a decision or uh, on how to write something in UEB can be frustrating. And so more examples uh, would help. Um, there are issues or charges, as the term is, um, which I won't go into today. Now, these are um, they're either on the list of um, Kathy Reeson's uh, Code Maintenance Committee, or they are still unassigned, but are clearly relevant to technical materials. So. Um, eventually, we might take those on in a more formal sense. Uh, they're just sitting there at the moment in a kind of reserve list. Um, so what I'd like to do today is um, open up discussion on the two uh, issues of the grade one indicators and the rule regarding inserting a space. Um, it just so that I think um, a face-to-face -face discussion uh, involving experts uh, and users um, will help bring out the points that uh, we're going to need to think about um, if we're going to possibly come to some resolution of those two issues. So um, shall we start with the um, grade one indicators? And I'm going to just um, ask if somebody would like to um, perhaps um, start us off um, and and perhaps with some illustrations as to what is the actual um, 
problem we're dealing with here? Is it a problem that we're going to need to make a decision on, or is it simply about just having some clear examples of what to do and when? And Clive, if I could just sort of remind everybody, if just to keep things sort of flowing, if um, you want to speak, please raise your hand and then our uh, moderators will let us know just so we can make sure that everybody who wants to speak gets a chance as much yep, absolutely. as possible with good. time. That's great. Thanks, Jen. And Clive, we've got James here to kick it off. So go ahead, James. Thank you, and I'll get the mute button the right way around. Um, so if I could give a little background from the UK, um, we've done some work on this, and my colleague David Spivey was on the meeting earlier. Um, it was him who spotted that even a simple mathematical expression such as X plus Y could, in theory, be brailed five different ways in UEB. They were all valid, they were all correct braille, but obviously one is better than, in some sense, all the others. So what is that best way and how does one get consistency? And the real question that came up was, if a teacher in a school teaches a student a way that they think best of using the grade one indicators, and then the student sits a public exam and they have a braille paper which is produced by a professional transcriber and that was produced in a different way with different usage of grade one indicators still valid but different placement that could potentially really throw the student so we thought it would be an excellent idea to try and get some consistency in the placement of grade one indicators i'll give you one simple example a equals pi r squared the formula for the area of a circle now you could write that with a grade one indicator just before the power sign for squared or you could slap the whole lot in a grade one passage indicator to show the whole lot's mathematics Thanks. James, we have Phyllis with her hand raised as well. Uh, yes, uh, my experience with this is marking technical exams for certification at CNIB. And we have a marking sheet that we follow to say this is an acceptable answer. Some of the problems as James said, have th three acceptable answers because of the differences in the way the grade one indicators could be used. And then someone comes along and does it another way. And we look at it and we say, yeah, what's wrong with that? And that's also an acceptable answer. So it, it, is, um, it is difficult. But on the other hand, I don't want to make things wrong if it is an acceptable way to present it. So I'm really torn in this uh, because as James says, if you use a, 
a passage indicator for a equals pi r squared. There's nothing wrong with that. There's also nothing wrong with doing uh, cap a equals pi r grade one superscript number two. Um, so I'm I'm really torn. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Phyllis. Uh, Kathy, go ahead, please. Kathy Reeson here, and this is uh, you. My hat as a transcriber, not my hat as code maintenance officer. My rule of thumb has always comes back to the same rule of thumb in many ways as you use for uh, choice of contractions is using the least number of cells. So in the example of A equals pi R squared, I would have simply used the single grade one indicator in front of the, super, uh, the superscript because that's one grade one indicator. If you use the, the passage indicator, you're, you're including five symbols. So I think the concept of, and UEB, uh, technical material in UEB tends to be bulky already, that in fact, using the least number of cells to me is the most efficient way of representing the grade one indicators. That's my rule of thumb. Thank you. <laughs> so, is this one of is this one of those examples where technically you can write something in a way that is unambiguous, but it it but different ways of writing there may be a preference, and if we just make it clear what the rule should be that allows people to make the the right choice, uh, does that does that take us um, closer to the to the answer? This is James. I would say yes, Clive. Um, how about the example x to the power of minus one? Two grade one indicators are needed. And you could either put one in front of the subscript and one in front of the first group indicator, the open group indicator, or you could put a grade one word indicator out front. Now, in some sense, one is going to be clearer than the other. They both take exactly the same number of cells in that particular case. Um, one is going to be, in quotes, easier, unquote. So some guidance on that, I think, would be very valuable. Cathy, uh, back here again, my rule of thumb, again, I'm talking to transcriber, not code maintenance officer, has always been, if we, uh, to use the grade one word indicator, so because it gives the reader the immediate information, the rest of this string is in grade one. It's, it's sort of immediate information. And it tells them there's, it, yeah, I would use the grade one word, word indicator in that case, rather than, yeah, rather than two separate. Yeah. I would as well. So the, the, the point is we are all on the same kind of lines, but there's nothing currently in GTM, which states this. Well, I think it's interesting if I can jump in here. It's Jen, there's, 
you know, Kathy, as you're, as you're talking about, you know, kind of saying, yeah, this is my transcriber hat. I think it's kind of along the same lines when we have these kinds of discussions, again, where the rule allows for some flexibility, you know, and I, I totally hear what Phyllis is saying too, because we don't want to just make things wrong if we don't need to be, if they're not really technically wrong. I do feel like as a reader, when I read stuff like that, my initial reaction would be, yeah, I would do the word indicator and, in, you know, the example that you gave and, and just some of the other examples too, where I feel like a little bit of, a little bit of, you know, braille reader intuition comes into play and you go, well, to me, this is kind of how I think I would prefer it as a reader, but then that may or may not be how the rule is, which is fine. I'm not, the rules don't have to just always go with what I, my intuition might be, but I just feel like that, that I think sometimes confuses the issue. I think for me, when I'm with some of these things, I'm sure I've, you know, have gotten it wrong on occasion. Maybe I shouldn't admit that on something that's being recorded, but you know, it's the reality, right? We have, Just have a couple of hands here. We have Deborah and Donald as well. Go ahead, Kathy, though. Right. I was just sort of throwing in another um, concept in there in, in the grade one. We also have the what's called the dot locator for use. And I have used that where you can then set a grade one passage above, above and below and, and switch it off above and below a whole string, you know, sort of, and when you've got um, a series of questions, you know, sort of series of questions, you know, part A, B, C, D, E, which are all in um, uh, complex fractions, you can set the whole thing to grade one. And, you know, sort of that's a very efficient method as well. There are a number of ways of making it, I think you're looking at efficiency, but that's from a transcriber perspective. And I also believe very much that um, Braille is not just read, it is written. So it's, it's what you're teaching students to write is also important. So we've got, it, it's a very complex question. Uh, we have Deborah to go ahead. Yeah, hi, um, Deborah Murphy from Australia. I'm also a transcriber and I agree with Kathy. Um, but I think both Kathy and I are talking from a long-term experienced transcribers. And I think it's important to have some clarity around this rule for new Braille readers and also um, transcribers who may not have the experience to be able to tell whether to use um, a passage, a word, a single grade one indicator. Um, I also find that um, translation in Duxbury, it's treated differently depending on whether I use maths type to put an expression in or I use, say, word to put the expression in, Duxbury will treat it differently. So if I use maths type, it will do a passage indicator, whereas if I just use word to insert the symbols separately, it may just put a single grade one. So there, there, there is a bit of confusion around that. Thank you, Deborah. We have Donald and Joe. So go ahead, Donald. Hi, uh, uh, Don Winnicky, USA, um, actually under Clive on the committee. 
uh, I'm going to come from a different direction. I am a transcriber, but I'm going to come from a different direction because I also teach in a college of engineering. And I'm concerned about how people consume the material, how they read it. Uh, and yes, we could certainly add more symbols if we surrounded everything in passages and using uh, Kathy's technique of the in-use symbolism also. But once we get past those five symbols, the three in the front and the two in the back to start and end grade one passage, the actual maths would end up being very consistent in size. We're just telling the reader, read it this way, and then go about and read it. They're not doing a lot of code switching, and that makes it for a more compact and certain reading experience. Now that's for the human readers. I wanna also consider another type of reader here, and that is the machine reader who we might uh, expect to convert the braille back into print, uh, the back translation task. That is also something that uh, I end up facing teaching in a college of engineering. Now I can read the braille, but most other faculty members aren't gonna do that. So I'm concerned about also building uh, standards that would allow then developers to produce those processors that allow the back translation to occur most certainly. Um, and uh, I guess I'm, I'll back out because I don't really have any answers, but I do have a few more factors that I just tried to introduce. Thanks for the minute. Thank you, Don. And Joe, go ahead, please. Uh, you need to unmute there, Joe. Here we are. Okay. Hi. I'm uh, I'm not a Braille reader, but I but I am uh, by training a mathematician, and I tend to think. That when you're into real mathematics, we're in a you're in a notation system that was not at all designed for contractions. Normally, I mean, I'm, I'm excluding cases where pseudo mathematics expressions are are used, like you know, uh, apples plus oranges equals fruit salad. You know, you can write that. That's not real mathematics, though. That's what we know what we mean by real mathematics. And that's the kind of thing that you would use uh, typically if you are composing uh, on a computer, you'd use something like math type or, or other, other math uh, composition programs for. But thinking from the point of view of the reader, once you're into real mathematics and the re there really aren't any English words in there, these, these are all letters and symbols and so forth, then, uh, you know, I guess you could say that something like a sign or a cosine is, is a kind of word, but really uh, even those, those are pretty much uh, symbols in, 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 in one's mind when reading, when reading mathematics. Uh, you don't really need to cope with all of the, the complex rules of contractions. I think when, when we designed uh, UEB, we were thinking that probably most real mathematics would be done pretty much all in grade one. 
and therefore when you get to something that is real mathematics you would you would write it and you would use a grade, grade one indicator if you were in a grade two environment and uh, and just writing grade one now thinking from the you know switching to my hopefully as a computer programmer that's real easy if you use something like math type because you've you've been in effect declared what's mathematics and what isn't and a human transcriber of course knows what's mathematics and what isn't but uh, you know perhaps if something is entered using just text you know if you've written x plus y equals z without using math type or with some other indicators that it's math then a, a a program will come along and just say, oh, this X is not yet there, so I have to put a letter sign in front. And, and, and oops, there's a plus sign here, so forth. So it, it, will, uh, it will just follow symbol by symbol and do, a, do what it has to. But I, what I suggest is that uh, the, the general rule would be that if you are in an expression, even a fairly short expression, that's real mathematics, it would be best from the reader's point of view, typically to treat it, uh, just to treat the whole thing in grade one, uh, surrounded if necessary with, with passage indicators or word indicators if that's short uh, and, and have done with it just so that there's no clutter inside the mathematics, which is I think a bit of a negative for someone who's, who's, who's reading uh, mathematics or computer notation or something like that. That is that is not really literary math, literary English, which is what contractions were designed for. Jen. Okay, thank you. Oh, sorry, Daphne. Yo, go ahead, Jen, and then Robert has his hand raised too. Okay, just I and this was kind of alluded to in the conversation, but I think one of the things we have where we're giving flexibility, and that's great. But from you know from the transcriber's perspective at least, you know, definitely most of the transcribers that, that I know, I think this would be the case where if you say to them, yeah, this is right, it's okay, but really it would be better to do it this other way. Most transcribers are gonna be like, well, I, I wanna do it the best way. And so I think there's maybe that element that we need to just kind of remember, I guess, when we're thinking about flexibility and just kind of random, I, I'm sorry, I can't help this as a Braille geek, but apples plus oranges equals fruit salad, I'm realizing actually doesn't have any contractions. I just thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> we need pineapples <laughs> or cherries. <laughs> Robert, why don't you go ahead? Thank you. Um, both Donald and Joe's points kind of go where I was going to go with this. Um, I get a lot of college level work. It tends to be the braille. It seems like nobody else wants to do. And so um, a lot of manual input, a lot of complicated thermodynamic formulas and chemistry elements that do have words in them in the subscript position a lot of times. But as Jill was saying, if we could almost treat the passage indicator like we do a language switch indicator to tell them when we're moving into technical code, and do entire components of an equation or a series of equations or a series of problems between those indicators, uh, we get rid of a lot of headaches in the looking for grade one indicators and missing them um, in, in the transcription, as well as 
uh, did grade one mode turn on or off in a line transition uh, in a series of equations that often tends to get overlooked. It would make things all grade one in between those indicators and would really simplify the braille, but most importantly, it would be consistent every single time in between those indicators. Thank you, Robert. I don't see any other hands raised at this time, Clive. Okay. Um, look, the themes that are coming through to me are that um, you know, flexibility is great, but but maybe we need just some clear um, rules. If rules is the right word, um, with a, I guess rule might not be the right word because it means if someone does it in a different way, then it's wrong. And, and there was a certain suggestion, a certain theme that we don't want to make it wrong. It's still quite readable, but maybe we need quite clear um, suggestions in the, in the guidelines as to how to make the decision. There seems um, a strong theme is just switch to grade one um, and presumably, if it's an if it's a mathematical expression, um, the chances are that the, the the word indicator or the passage indicator is going to be the best choice. Um, maybe it has to be a reasonably sized passage before the passage indicator becomes the best choice. Um, but as long as people know that they've been told to, that this is in grade one, um, it that would appear to be the the signal that says now you're reading maths and um, and and just explore it as a reader in that way. Um, is that is that sort of like the the where people would like to end up? We have Jennifer's hand raised here. Yeah. Just to quickly agree with what Joe and Robert and Don have said, and also for the reason that not only are we making the rules easier for transcribers and readers, but we're also setting a tone for people who are using six keys to enter their Braille mathematics and to try to make sure that they are going to be doing that in a way that's going to back translate properly. Um, yeah. And as they all the way through their, you know, from beginner to advance. So. Mm. So if we've got some agreement, and I don't want to rush this because I think there's there's always a need to just reflect on these things, but have I got a volunteer or someone who would be willing to, um, you know, are we talking here, if we're talking here about something specific um, regarding uh, the the, the guidelines for technical materials. I mean, how do we turn this discussion into an action point that um, ultimately becomes a recommendation for change in, in one of our publications? Kathy, I'm wondering if you want to speak to that just because you're the chair of the CMC committee. So you've had to, you know, you've had to do this many times. Um. <clears throat> I'm just looking at the guidelines for technical material. So the section that we're looking at is 1.7, the use of grade one indicators. And so I think that's the section that we probably need to um, look at as in rewriting that section. And as, and as it's drafted, uh, you know, sort of 
people will then, you know, sort of a bit like the code maintenance with with our section 2.6, 1 point, whatever they they were in Appendix 1. Each draft, somebody comes up with something. Have you thought about this? It doesn't work there. It doesn't work there. And it gradually gets to a point where it actually becomes a really good working document. And that's, I think, the, the next step of this is to look at um, that 1.7 section of, of the uh, guidelines. Once that's done, we can then look, look through the guidelines and look at specific um, examples where grade one indicators have been used and see where those examples may need to be updated or altered. But certainly that's where um, the specific section of the, the guidelines which cover grade one indicators. I'm, it's interesting, Roberts, I, I think it was Roberts, or was it Donald? I can't remember. Um, concept on, you know, sort of a, you know, the code switching thought and, you know, sort of a similar thought was going through through my mind just before then, but I haven't, but I need to think that one through because that's a totally different um, thinking process of the whole thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to talk to that, but it's, it, it's interesting that I had a similar thought coming into my mind, which I haven't thought about yet. But certainly section 1.7 is the one that we need to look at. Well, thanks, Cathy. Um, so is, is someone willing to um, try and um, come up with any um, sort of wording that could be put to us in future for discussion? Is that where we're at? James Bowden here from the UK. So we've already done some work on this in UCAF and we are trying to finalise some kind of wording that might be appropriate to bring to the table at ISEB uh, as a first step. Now, we already have some UCAF guidelines uh, on this subject, which you are all welcome to view at UCAF, UKAAF for foxtrot.org forward slash ueb and you can find the mathematics mathematics guidelines it's section five in there those are not what we're proposing but it will give you a flavor of the kind of thing that we're proposing okay but once i'm once once i've consulted with my colleagues at ucaf i would be very happy to share our suggestions as a starting point now it's it's it's, it's interesting to note that uh, David Spivey actually went through GTM and all the examples which are currently in that in there and put worked them through what we would like to suggest, put them through Duxbury and used the examples as they stand in guidelines technical material. And with what we're proposing, the majority were identical which is a really good result. 
if I may, if I may also speak about uh, a code switch indicator, I come from a background of the old British maths notation. There was never a code switch indicator. And as a reader, you pretty well knew pretty instantly if you saw zing plus ying that it was actually x squared plus y squared. Um, and I think a, a reader, give them some intelligence here, if there's no grade one indicators and they come up with zin, zin two plus yin two, they'll soon work out that's x squared plus y squared. It's more than machine translations. Which that's mean. right. Yeah, and I, I think, I think that's a valid point, and and um, one we shouldn't lose sight of. But it, but it is important that uh, in today's world, when um, and I'm sure you're making this point too, James, that if someone's using a braille device and their um, output is going to be back translated, and um, in turn, and that's going to be how they're going to get a mark in a test. Yes. Then uh, we'd better make sure it works, and uh, and that's why we need these uh, extra symbols. But yeah, I can remember the days in my Nemeth days. You know, um, a boy weighs one hundred and twenty pounds, and and in the middle of the sentence, you've got this numeral sign one two zero in lower case. Uh, but all around it, you've just got English words, and clearly you have to make the decision that this bit is Nemeth and that bit is English, and and we we've all we've all been in that in that situation yeah the um, human brain's we, very good at that kind of decision yes and, and it's so good yeah you almost don't realize you're doing it um un, until you grapple with the with the problem that how does the computer know um what what's happening uh, when it's when it's uh, reading um translated braille and and uh, and back translating it um so we'll look, we will look forward to that, um, uh, James. What sort of time frame do you think um, we need to give you for, um, for when we might hear um, from from the UK? That's a very good question. Um, I we we have draft documents. We were trying to wordsmith it into a form that we like before sending it off to you. Um, if if I if I consult my colleagues and they're happy to do so, I'll send you the whole draft and then you can do what you like with it. But uh, we shall see. Okay, well, look, it's just one small step at a time. To consult with you, Kath. Sorry. Give give me an action, someone to yeah. consult with you, Kath, about our maths guidelines. All right. Well, you do that and and come back to the list um, with something. This is just the uh, like a face to face opportunity to. Um, get our heads around the problem and, and, and at least head in the direction of a, of a resolution. So um, we'll leave the ball in your court for now and we'll wait to hear from you. Um, if Thank anybody you. else wants to look at this um, particular section and, and, um, and, and suggest any uh, changes in wording that can just be put on the table for now for, for consideration um, to head us in the direction of a, a more consistent approach to when to use a particular grade one indicator, then you're all welcome to um, put forward those suggestions. And James has given us, um, if anyone wants to go and have a look at what they've got online um, with UCAF, then um, go and see what their what their guidelines uh, suggest as an indicator of, um, of where we might go with this. Um, but I do feel this is gonna be resolvable. And, um, and and hopefully, you know, it's going to be uh, not particularly painless to come up with um, with suggestions because I think there's quite a strong 
seem even in today's discussion um, heading us in in a particular direction. So what about the uh, other one then? Yeah. That's sorry, sorry, Clive. Yes, that's my just my two cents worth uh, input there. Again, it comes back to what I uh, raised yesterday. Um, for a country like South Africa, where we have uh, languages that might uh, be affected by uh, this initiative, it, it 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 would it would or it may amount to some certain uh, challenges. We have languages that use diacritics that are more similar to uh, some current currency uh, signs that are used, for example, the dollar sign, uh, uh, which is used in Sesotho, uh, Northern Sesotho to be specific. And, and that, would, that, that would require some considerable amount of engagements so as to come to a realistic outcome which would suit uh, the South African context when it comes to those uh, th those discussions because they are going to be seriously affected when it goes on like this. This well, is Jen. Okay. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Just before you start, Jen, I'll just yeah. respond and say, look, um, when we have um, suggestions that are put on the table for us to uh, discuss, um, you know, if there are any issues to do with uh, specific countries um, and their own situations that could be impacted. Obviously, we need to give time for um, people to uh, fully evaluate any proposal. Um, that's why these things, you know, take time. Um, yeah, really. So, so I take take your uh, point, and uh, but when, but but when we have something to discuss, um, you know. We hope that you'll be um, sharing that around with your colleagues and uh, bringing back any um, uh, concerns that you have as a that of an impl implications for your particular country and everybody else should be doing the same thing. Sure. So, Jen, I think you were going to speak. Well, I was just going to say too that I I think my sense is that we're not necessarily planning to change the rules. That no. what we're looking at is more just clarifying how the how the decision is made as to when to use the grade one indicator or not. You know when to use the symbol word or passage indicator. So I. I agree. It's 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 great to raise all these points and have these discussions, but I don't get the sense that we're planning to again do a whole rewrite of things. Yeah, yeah I, that's my view too. I think it's going to come out um, that will just be clearer in in the guidelines as to um, how a transcriber makes the decision, um, and hopefully that will resolve the frustration that's been signalled. That. Um, 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 but you know, we'll 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 see what happens as we as we go into it. Um, uh, Clive, it's yep. Clive, we have a comment from Jody here. Thank you. Oh hi, I thanks Clive. Yeah, Jody Doolan from Australia. Um, I just actually had a question for for James. Um, you were talking about the UCAF website. I'm not sure if that's the way you say it. UCAF. Um, yeah, it was a, some time ago. I actually downloaded. Uh, I think it was UEB maths guidelines. Within that, there was some guidance on the grade one symbols, but indicators, sorry, but you're you're saying that that's going to be updated. Is that any indication, like the UEB maths guidelines that was up yep. on the UCAP? Yep, you're in precisely the right place. 
so that's kind of what you're finalizing yes you're, that's you're, what we're kind of working on yeah working on revising uh -huh. that um i didn't really want to get into that but when we originally wrote those guidelines there was a, a, an arbitrary decision that um if you if you can't put a grade one indicator within three cells then you use a pass use a word or a passage uh, now we don't like that because it gives different outputs from everybody else uh, uh, so we're trying to revise that just taking that away um, so you can almost read the guidelines without that kind of three cell clause in there okay and that gives a good indication of where we're headed okay great because I, I have it was a little while ago that I you know spent some time looking at that you know because yeah, I've kind changed. of gone okay I've, I've basically gone from you know the grade the guidelines for technical material like looking at section 1.7 and that's where I've kind of gone from and then there's also UEB online they have kind of a bit of a rationale as well because I've done those sort of online maths courses and um, within the context of the actual exercises you're meant to sort of apply certain um, rules <laughs> but then I've found you can jiggle them around too so and they'll still give you the right answer so <laughs> it leaves you in that confusing zone yeah well this might be one of those examples of a vacuum that forms when you know each country has had to look at this issue on their own and and uh, and there might be some um, deviation if you like between how each country has settled but hopefully we can find a way through the middle of that and come up with something that um, we're not talking about a rule we're talking about uh, a strong guideline that gives a signal uh, and uh, if we're kind of happy with 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 what we come up with then that will start to head um, people in, in that direction uh, for future translations that they do so we'll see where this goes we'll leave it with uh, james and the uk for now but if anybody else wants to put anything forward on this that's what the list is for um and uh, time is moving on so we might want to talk about this other one which is this inserted space um and i had a quick look at that recently and and i, I must i must admit as a uh, as a, a user of UEB, and uh, I was a little surprised that we would put a space in if it didn't exist in the print. Um, but uh, and obviously that is um, uh, has caused uh, controversy. So that's why people have have raised it um, more than one. Um, so who would like to um, lead the discussion or start off the discussion of this of this point? Um, do we need to revisit that rule? and maybe come up with a different one. Why is it there? Um, if someone can explain that, um, uh, that would be good. Uh, James like has to... a comment. James has yep. a comment. Yep. Yeah, so uh, this, is, this is another one on our list in the UK. And um, it is because if you had, for example, the sign of H, well, shine is also a mathematical function, and therefore you must have a space uh, currently to prevent the misread. Um, now, I understand that technically and typographically speaking in print, there is a half space between the function name and the variable. Now, obviously, with standard Braille writing equipment, we can't easily do half spaces, hence the problem. One possible solution would be to demand a grade one indicator in those cases. One thing I'd, I'd just add to that, you know, the half space, 
in the print you also have like the variable often in italics which is you know yes. apparent to the print reader but not yes yeah the function name is written in in, in roman type but the variables are written in italics aren't they yeah that's that's often the case yeah so when i was thinking about this i wondered if because uh, a, a, a grade one indicator um, doesn't doesn't infect doesn't impact on on ambiguity and it, it it's just a character that can be thrown in and it just um, indicates that the following letter is a letter and not something else so it's harmless to insert that um, that's right and so if, if we if we if we take it um, further let's assume the sign of lowercase a, which would then have a dots five, six between the N and the A, mm. uh, the sign of capital A, which would have a dot six between the N and the A, and the sign of Greek alpha, which would have a dots four, six between the N and the A, they now all look very similar. Yes. Just wondering if anybody like not to put anyone on the spot, but Phyllis or Joe or Darlene or, you know, somebody who was uh, Chris, Christine Simpson, maybe like just somebody who was on the committee in the earlier days when these decisions yeah. were made. I'm wondering if they could, if they would. I'd wanna... love to hear um, that too. Um, what was the rationale for that particular um, okay. wording? It's Kathy, uh, Kathy here. Um, and I'll probably say sim similar. I, I had put this question to Phyllis previously and whatever. And of course, you, if you're in uh, grade two mode or contracted mode, uh, sign Y, the five, six, you've got sign itty. <laughs> so you, you you have got that the five, six is part, you know, sort of there is, you know, there are, you know, those couple of five, six contractions, which can cause confusion. Now, that's a fairly, um, there may be ways around that. I don't know, but that's one of the rationales. So it's it's so that you're not getting confused with um, um, a contract, you know, sort of an existing contraction because we do have those couple of five, six contractions. So if you were to use the space rule, would you still have to then use the, um, the grade, grade one, one indicator. indicator? Otherwise, it would be sign YOU. Correct. Sign space YOU, right? So you'd yeah, yeah. Which, so but I without, don't like... without the space, it could be read as SINITY. Correct. What you're saying, yeah. Yes, if it's in if it's in grade two mode. Yes, if it's in grade two mode. If it's in grade yeah. one mode, you don't have a problem. So yeah, it's, yeah it, it, it's. Um, I, I think it's resolvable, but it's yes. but but that is where where the issue comes. Uh, Joe has his hand raised yeah. there. Go for it, Joe. Yes, yes. Just speaking to uh, how the rule came about, <laughs> and uh, and basically James uh, James nailed it. So I I just took my hand down earlier because yeah, it's because of. The sign hyperbolic, you know, is sign S I N H, and that's a perfectly good function in in print in uh, mathematics. Uh, I don't know of any other letter that would, uh, would would raise that same kind of issue, but we simply decided that 
as it's also noted, there is in, in uh, well-rendered print, typically a little space there, the half space, if you want to call it that, uh, partly for that same reason. If you, have, if you have, happen to have the sign of HY, then you would certainly need that space. But, you, but there's one there anyway, even if it's got sign of Y or sign of theta, there tends to be a little bit of a space unless it's an open paren or something. That's just the way mathematics is normally is normally uh, uh, typeset. So what we were saying was, uh, pay attention to that space. That space is important. The other spaces in print may not be so much. Spaces around equal signs and so forth are also typically there, uh, but you can you can ignore them if you don't want if you if you uh, prefer not to. Uh, if you need to. Uh, com com compress things, but uh, uh, that space is important and or can be important in the case of, uh, of, of, of a function because the function is, ends with the, in the case of sign, ends with the end and it has to be readable that way. That's where it came from. Anyway, that's very nice. Well, look, thanks for explaining that. So um, I, when I was thinking about this, I actually even wondered um, whether there must be something in the print to tell the reader that, you know, um, SINX is not sinks, but actually sine of X. And there yeah. must be something. And we've had a couple of um, comments like, is it half a space or just some, some kind of separation? Also, perhaps a different um, um, type font to indicate variables, which we probably wouldn't want to uh, clutter the, the Braille with that indicator unless it was important um, in the context of the document to show that. Um, so then the question is, is there any harm? Well, I've, it hasn't yet been explained to me that some people find the insert space rule to be harmful um, in some way. Is, is someone willing to explain what the, what the problem actually is with that? There's a couple of hands raised here. Yep. We've got Robert and Phyllis. So go ahead, Robert. Mine wasn't on that uh, removing the space issue. It was more on the uh, use of contractions in these equations where these- Joined the meeting. Um, components like sign are used. They also indicate superscript. And so, as we mentioned earlier, if you're using passage indicators and you go into grade one mode, now our sines and cosine H uh, for hyperbolic cosine, those symbols become very simple to braille. They're always a letter sequence instead of, is it contracted in this equation and not the next equation? And then that space just makes it clear because it allows for automated translation using that half space that comes through in the math type and other codes to be translated correctly without us having to alter the text. So that, that's the only point I'd like to make. So that's, that's in, sort of in favor of the current rule. If I've interpreted your comment correctly, that the, um, having the current rule means that uh, that space character, half space character, whatever it is, it physically is there. So a translator will turn that into an actual space and that's what you get. Yes, and that, yeah. that was part of the, the reason for creating UEB was 
fixing automation as much as possible. So if yep, we move yep. away from that, now yep. we're forced to have to strip out all those spaces. Yeah, I, I get where you're coming from. I, I must admit, when I first thought, thought this through, I wasn't aware that there could be this, um, um, this half space, but that helps to clarify um, the problem we're dealing with. So it's good to have had that. Now, there was another person I've forgotten who, who was going to speak. Yeah, it's Phyllis. Um, and I'm not addressing uh, your question, uh, but a thought that just occurred to me is maybe uh, some of the problem is that uh, we have two different ways of doing functions in that some things don't have to be spaced and other things do. What if we just said recognize that space always, whether it's this sign is followed by a number or uh, a letter or a capital letter or a Greek letter, uh, always keep that space. Well, that's a possibility. Um, some people might say that a space isn't, if a space isn't necessary for readability, then uh, maybe it you know, it doesn't matter because, of course, it's only Braille that has these prefixes to indicate a capital or a or a Greek letter um, in print. Those would they would just be characters, and there would be that half space. So in Braille, you would end up with a full space plus then that extra indicator. So is that what we really need, or is it perfectly okay to then not have the space in that case? James here. Um, yep. Phyllis, you, you, you took exactly what I was going to say, which is brilliant. Um, and to go on to Robert's point, I absolutely am in favour myself of always writing S-I-N because of that superscript issue. Um, yeah. You know, S to the power of theta could quite be valid mathematics, um, but sine theta is much more likely. Um, so I, I'm definitely in favour of always writing S-I-N. Uh, Kathy Reeson here. Um, I I did have the thought of um, having the space, and and I agree with that concept. I would like a consistent that you that whatever we come up with, it's it's always either a space is shown or not shown in some way, you know, regardless of context. The dilemma with putting a space in between the function and its, um, um, what, what's the word? Argument. The word. Argument, thank you. Well, a computer programmer would say it's the argument, but anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that'll do. The function and and its argument is is that when it comes to Braille, that needs to be a non-breaking space that, that that string is kept together. Oh, yeah, you I don't want to the other thing. two lines. So, so that's another complexity to um, look at. <laughs> yep, thank you. Well, at the moment, we are sort of exploring the issue. Does, is there anybody else with a comment? There are no hands raised at this time, Clyde. Okay. Oh, oh. sorry, I just put mine up. <laughs> okay, oh, go sorry, for it. Jody. <laughs> oh, sorry. I was just wondering if we actually touched on the space that sometimes we add before um, the function name. 
have we touched on that today? You know, not today, talk, but uh, I noticed that as well in the rule, and I wondered about about that as well. When you have a lower or uppercase Latin letter um, with no intervening braille indicators or brackets, we insert a space um, before the function name, don't we? Mm. So, does anybody have any 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 comments on that? Is that the sim similar kind of thing where, presumably, in the print there would be some kind of separation? visual yes. visual distinction and we're thinking of how do we how do we indicate a distinction in braille that 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 is the at least the equivalent to some kind of visual distinction in the print yes you are right there is a half space there as well yeah 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 so and, it's and the Clive, same idea you, yes and and you've just you've just nudged my memory um jody I did once hear someone, and I forget who it was, and apologies if you're on the meeting or listen to the recording and I've forgotten your name, actually suggesting that, like our former British Maths Code, there were symbols for functions. So you would have, a, a, if you like, function prefix S, and that meant sign function prefix C and that meant cos and so on. So I'm just going to throw that in as a kind of sideways suggestion and I'm not seriously suggesting we should consider it but I'd like to put it on the table as something that someone did suggest once. Personally I'd rather not go there but <laughs> yeah I know exactly what you're thinking yeah. They even suggested how it could be done in UEB because there is one spare symbol. Yeah. Oh, it could mode. be done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, okay. I, Kathy Reeson here. I I would only consider that if Unicode came up with a symbol <laughs> for some, you know, sort of. We would need to have a a sim, you know, a print symbol in inverted commas for those things to mm. consider that concept. And at this point in time, it is still spelled out S-I-N mm. in print or C-O-S. So Yeah, I mean, these in print, that's what you get, isn't it? You get TAN and yeah. those sorts of functions are just written out, aren't they? They don't have symbols at, at the right. moment, do they? No, I don't no. think so, no. Yeah. I think Joe, Joe wants to say something there, or, or is he just banging no, on? I'm just agreeing with you, sorry. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, look, I think um, I, I'm. I think at the moment we're still in the business of exploring this issue to to fully understand the sort of the pros and cons of a. Why is it done the way it's done at the moment? And b. Is there a need to change it? Um, and I think I'd like to um, leave that. Um, where it is at the moment and see did James did you say you, you said that um, UCAF is working on this so again if you have uh, anything to add in due course um, uh, that would be useful um, so might be in touch with you about that um, yeah, but again we'll it might be one of those situations where um, perhaps it might help to to just um, for the rule, even if it's to remain the same, to just have a bit more explanation as to its origin so that people know where, where this came from. Uh, it's certainly been helpful to me to understand, because I don't read print, um, how these distinctions are made 
and there can be multiple ways of making these distinctions in print. So when you think about it that way, uh, you we're, we're trying to reflect in the Braille um, where we don't have as many ways of doing it as print people do, um, something about the distinction between the function word and its parameters or arguments and the things that goes with it. Um, so that's what we're trying to achieve. Um, whether whether the space is the best way to achieve it um, uh, when the, the the following letter is a is a letter, um, I don't know. But um, we've had an example of what might happen if we try and um, get rid of the space and then end up with a, a contraction that we weren't expecting. So whether we can handle that, I don't know. I think we need to just keep um, thinking about this and seeing where our collective wisdom takes us um, either, either um, towards a change or, or staying the same, but with more explanation as to uh, why the rule is the way it is. Does, does that kind of, is, are people happy with that kind of summary of where we're at? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, are there any other things that people want to discuss before our time is up? Um, we've only got a few minutes left. Well, we've still got the email list. So um, thank you for your time this morning. Um, I, I did have one thing, Claudia. Oh. Have a minute. Yep. One of the major things that I think is happening that is going to break automation and seems to be creeping into a lot of manuals um, as to how to braille technical material is the use of the continuation indicator. And what's tending to happen in a lot of the documents that are going out is they're saying that when a line ends, the indention pattern makes it clear you do not need a continuation indicator. And the problem with that is not that the Braille reader couldn't figure it out, it's back translation down the road. That continuation indicator is there to take and tell the computer that there is no blank space in the transition between lines. And that's a big deal because if you start an equation on one line with a numeric number, let's say, which set grade one mode, and then you transition to the next line and it starts with the letter sequence and then some more numbers, do you reinstate grade one? Whereas yeah. the continuation indicator tells the computer, you're still in grade one mode, you continued on to the next line, we're still doing something in grade one. Um, it, this is a very important indicator that's being overlooked on line breaks and, and other things that it's used for. And I just thought that it's something we need to kind of bump up on the list of things to resolve so we're consistent in its use. So is that a problem with um, not following the rule? Um, or is it just a, is it more of a problem for um, users? Because I would have thought that uh, typically, if a transcriber is transcribing technical material, th the material is unlikely to be back translated. But if a student is writing something in uh, that is to do with technical materials and is f using UEB, um, it's critical that what they are writing 
is is correct if it's going to be back translated by their device or by someone else's um, you know they hand in a brf file or something and someone else back translates it so in that case i would have thought it's the user that needs to be aware of what they have to do to ensure that that is going to work I so what do you think what is this is this a is this a rule issue or a or a, a knowledge issue i think it's a it's a rule issue as to we're not hard and fast in the code anywhere that says you always use a continuation indicator for a break and as to your point you're correct the the student's the one doing the back translation but if the student's not taught that the indicator exists or how to properly mm. use it by reading it how does he know how to use yeah. it yeah so you're back? calling yeah That's so you're calling for consistency so that students are aware of 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 that and it's a consistent both directions and it and yeah. it it will make back translation better future programs may make it easier for the blind student to yeah. create their math in in uh an editor and then back translate using braille symbols uh, back translate to print yeah that, that's where we want to that's where we want to go i think uh, so that, that symbol needs to be addressed before we get too yeah. far down the beaten path of not using Okay. It. Thanks for uh, raising Kathy, that. Yeah, Kathy. Uh, Kathy Reeson here. I totally agree with Robert. Um, yeah. It has been one of the one of my um, things. My 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 point of view is that if there is no, if you have to go go to a new line and there is no space in the print, then the continuation symbol should be used. So is it in the rules, Kathy? Uh, one or do we need uh, to clarify that in the rules? It's 1.4. It's in 1.4. Yeah. 1.41, um, 1.42, 1.43. Yeah, 1.4. But the rules are a little bit sort of a little bit hazy. And okay. there's been more than one. And, and, and there are two interpretations on it. Yes. Okay. All right, so I've, I'm going to make a note of that on my little list of things that we as a committee have to progress. Um, yeah. I don't think um, yeah, and it's a, yeah, keep going. And James has got his hand up too. <laughs> okay, James. Yeah, uh, I again absolutely agree. And there are cases currently not covered by the rules, like, for example, the best place to divide at a line break. Let's yeah. assume you had a great big long fraction with fraction indicators and lines and goodness as else what where's the best place to divide it's not yeah. listed in the rules but i'm sure people would value that kind of input on a, on another subject um i was going to mention clive um kathy mentioned uh yesterday about trying to head for a new edition of the rule book in 2024 now, to that end, some of the potential charges for the technical committee involve creation of new symbols. Yes, the they do. Yeah. They're sitting on the do. reserve list. At, yeah, exactly. That's right. So if, uh, if we decide that new symbols are a good idea, then getting them into the rule book for 2024 would also be a good idea. Absolutely. Yep. And Robert has his hand raised. The, the last thing I wanted to say on continuation kind of jumps on the last statement about 
uh, consistency with line breaks, um, the technical code covers computer code and in the old computer code that we used in the US, it was pretty clear on where you broke things. And in UEB, there's not a lot of clarity as to whether you break in a web address that has multiple words between words. Do you break at a slash or a hyphen? Yeah. So any any type of consistency that could give give there, because I've seen all kinds of weird things, including breaking in the middle of a U2 number sequence. They put as much as can fit on the line and break. And then some of them use the continuation indicator and others don't. Um, the last thing about the continuation indicator, there is nothing in there that says whether or not it continues grade one mode to the next line or whether or not it continues um, capitals modes uh, to the next line because it would be a different indicator uh, slash symbol that terminates a capital indicator. Um, so those are some things we might want to think about as well. Since it is a continuation, can we carry the modes through the continuation indicator to avoid excessive grave ones on the next line? They're actually really good points for the actual yep. rule book as well. Yep. So that's, a, that's, that's one thing that'll cross over to the rule book as well. So very good point there, Robert, about yep. um, I'll, I'll check that in the rule book about whether grade one and et cetera is, is continued past. Yes. Uh, Phyllis is shaking her head. So, but but uh, that one needs to be looked at. Thank you. I'm I'm aware that I think our time is coming up to uh, be concluded, and um, but it's quarter two. I don't know when we stop, but I think we stop soon, right? You've got you can go for another ten minutes, Clive. Okay, All right. or 12, 13 minutes. Um, okay, that's cool. Um, so we just at that. the CanCon moment's Clive. really short. <laughs> Yes, yeah, that's okay. So we'll just maybe, if we've got a few more minutes, uh, just to see if anybody does have some final points. I don't want to rush in that case uh, to, cut, to uh, cut anybody off. Are there any final uh, points people want to make? Yeah. Particularly to get things on our list. We're not going to resolve them today, but to, I think it's really important that we know all the things that we're meant to be uh, act, active on, and then I can keep, um, you know, uh, encouraging people to make progress. So uh, anything else? Yes, Phyllis, go ahead. Thanks. Uh, yeah, there, the continuation indicator is best addressed uh, in section 17 on computer notation, where I think it, it does make it clear uh, fairly well that it should be used, but it, we certainly don't address anywhere else whether uh, equations divided between lines need continuation indicators. We do talk about the best choice of a dividing point in section 1.4.2, which I think might have been borrowed from Nemeth uh, to some extent at least. The rules fairly similar, but when you divide yeah. as to what it was in Nemeth. Yeah. The other thing is that it does not say anywhere whether or not uh, a mode continues past a continuation indicator. It didn't get addressed. Okay, so that sounds like it's a point that needs to be uh, clarified. And I don't know if I 
so I'm not familiar with the uh, documents here, Phyllis, but you talked about the, uh, when you talked about the computer section, I think you, you were talking about computer code or something like that. What what section was this, 17? Yes, it's it's uh, computer notation. And it right. talks about cursor indicator, visible space, continuation indicator, continuation yeah. indicator with space, non-directional double quote. And then it, uh, okay. definition of computer notation, line arrangement and spacing with com in computer notation. Okay. So, but I think Braille. Uh, maybe the point though also is that um, continuing continuation between lines is, is something that happens outside of computer notation. So it, 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 um, it may be that people need to be referred there or, um, have that somewhere else as well. But um, I think over time we'll get to understand all that and, and uh, hopefully come up with a, with a good decision. But it does sound like some clarity is needed with respect to uh, continuation lines when things have to break across two lines in Braille or multiple lines actually sometimes. If there's some horrendous uh, URLs that can take four or five lines to write. Um, okay. Uh, any final points? We have a quick comment from Diane and Robert. Thank you. Hi, sorry, I'm Diane Sweet. I'm from Australia. I just wanted to speak to a, a different point um, that I uh, wanted some clarity over. Um, the um, termination sign when it comes to, um, to shapes um, that's required at the moment, even, you know, when they're up against a comma or um, an operation sign, I was just wondering um, why that is a rule, because it can't be, um, you know, depicted as anything else, but, you know, like that character, unless there was some ambiguity, uh, why that's used. You know, the contraction, WH contraction is um, used at the moment to terminate um, a shape. If it's up against a comma or, yeah, a plus or minus or whatever. I like Anybody it, able to? I like it. Yeah, so if you have, for example, a whole series of circles, circle, 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 you're you're increasing the size of that by putting all these WH signs all over the place. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I've, I've never been a fan of um, of that um, and of that, you know, the termination sign. It makes it so long, and for you know, young readers especially, it's uh, it's become, becomes harder for them. I think there are times where it's, again, this is, I think, something that maybe Phyllis or, you know, somebody who was who was involved in that decision, it might be helpful because I feel like there are times where you actually do need to make it really clear that whatever's coming next is not actually part of the shape. Yeah. Uh, I agree, you know, but um, that's uh, seldom happens. And if you, if that did happen, I can understand you using a termination sign in those situations. Uh, to make it clear to the reader, but otherwise, um, it's a bit like you know the five six you know sort of um, argument 
where there's any uh, against an A, um, say, in a, in a diagram, just so that it doesn't get lost in the diagram or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's why I was hoping that somebody could explain because there's probably rationale that maybe I don't know about or, you know, that's sort of why I was hoping somebody else might be able to shed some light. Um, Kathy Reeson here. I was just having, you know, sort of, that, that's something that has annoyed me as well, but, you know, sort of, you can see it. And a, a sudden thought that came came into my head is, is, is whether we use a similar process to what we've used for um, superscripts and subscripts, where that indicator, the superscript indicator operates on the next symbol or group of symbols so that if, if it's a single letter following that's all all it's that if it's if it's more than one letter or more than one symbol you put it into grouping you know sort of look look at the grouping concept for that is to find another way of defining um what what the shape indicator is is looking at, and most times we use a shape indicate, or although, oh, oh yeah, single symbol is number three. That's a, sim a single print symbol, you know. But then, yeah, it becomes complex. So I think there, there may be a way around it, but we need to look at it carefully. <laughs> yeah, I think um, we'll just put that on our list of things to to um, examine. Can I have the name of the person that was a, who was the previous person who raised this one? Diane Smith. Sorry, I missed that. Diane Smith. Oh, Diane Smith. Okay. Yeah. Um, very good. Look, I think we are out of time. We need to hand it back to Jen, and uh, we might get another CanCon uh, before we close. <laughs> so, um, my thanks to you all, and uh, uh, we'll keep working on these things. Well, thank you, Clive, and thank you, everyone, for a great discussion. It's always you know, I know we've said this probably more than once already, but it's it's really good to have the opportunity to have this kind of dialogue. And so, you know, you just never know what what's actually going to come up in conversation. There's the things that we know are going to come up and then, you know, there's always some surprises. So that's good too. And I'm sure, Clive, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm sure it's given you, you know, some stuff to uh, to think about. So we have come to the end of day four. And at the beginning of this, uh, I was going to say the beginning of the session, at the beginning of the meetings today, I invited, I, I kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, here's what you need to, you need to know these things if you come to Canada. Well, if you do come to Canada, you also are, are going to need to have money. That's, you know, kind of a given. So I thought that I would talk really briefly about our money because there are a couple of, there's a cool Braille related thing. And then we have a couple of quirky, you know, quirky things as well. So for anyone who may not be aware, we have for the past 10, 15 years, we have had Braille on our bills and we have there now our, our newer bills are this polymer kind of plasticky material and which is actually great because it helps the Braille to last a little bit longer. And the way it works is that instead of numbers, we have a Braille cell. If you have a $5 bill, there's one Braille cell. If you have a $10 bill, there's two, a 20 is three, a 50 is four, and a 100 is five. I, I think once in that time, I have seen a $100 bill. And then presumably, you know, if you have a $500 bill, which 
you know, I'm not the kind of person that walks around with a $500 bill in my wallet, but it, it actually resets. That's what somebody told me. I don't know if that's true, but that is the way that you can identify our bills. And so it's very cool. There was some debate and discussion about some Braille readers, me included, actually thinking, well, hey, why aren't there the actual numbers? But it's a fair point that for people who are have lost their vision and haven't yet learned Braille, that the Braille cell option is a good system. And it probably does better for things that, you know, the bill, as much as the polymer is a kind of long lasting, it's, it's not necessarily something that's super durable. So this is very clear. You don't have to worry about you know, it's less likely to be confusing. So that's something that you want to know if you're coming to visit us. The other thing that you need to be aware of is you'll notice I started at five. I started at the $5 bill. And that the reason for that is that in, and I believe it was 1987. I actually remember it. I was, well, never mind. doesn't matter how old I was then. Um, not that I really care, but we there was this huge debate and we actually got rid of the $1 bill and we had a $1 coin. And of course, what are we going to call this $1 coin and has a loon on it. So it became the loony and it's got these sort of rounded ridge ridges on it. So it's very uh, around the edge. It's very distinctive. And then about three years later, we did the same thing with the $2 bill that we used to have. And of course there was another, you know, there's all that debate, oh, it's going to make our wallets too heavy and we don't want to get rid of the cost more to produce. I don't know, all kinds of debate and we could debate about anything. And then, of course, there was, well, what are we going to call this? And there were a number of suggestions thrown around. I seem to remember that one, someone even suggested doubloon, which I feel like we're Canada. We, we I don't know that we could, I think a doubloon might be a little too, you know, I don't know if that's a Wild West kind of thing. Anyway, it ended up that two loonies equal a toonie. And so in Canada, we have loonies and toonies. And toonies are a little bit bigger and they have more smaller ridges. And apparently for a while, you could poke out the center if you had the right tools and put it on a necklace, which is illegal uh, to do that. But anyway, apparently you used to be able to do that. So um, that's... And we've also gotten rid of the penny, which I have to say that was a that was a pretty good move. So anyway, that's your little crash course on Canadian money. And uh, with that, I will bid you good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. And I will see you tomorrow for day five. Same time, same Zoom link. Again, if you need anything regarding registering or have questions, info at blc-lbc.ca. And I wanted to um, also mention, I forgot to do this earlier, but thank you, Natalie, for live tweeting. You can follow that at ICEB Braille on Twitter with the hashtag ICEB2022. So thank you, everyone, and we will see you tomorrow. Jen Golden bringing to a close our coverage of today's sessions of the Midterm Executive Committee meeting of the International Council on English Braille. My name is Matthew Horsepool and uh, Jen will be joining us very shortly on the podcast. We actually finished slightly early today, not by very much. Uh, it's one minute to midnight. Uh, so uh, we've, we've done reasonably well. I mean, finishing early is better than 
finishing late. And um, a fascinating discussion there um, from Clive Lansing, the new chair of the UEB uh, technical committee, uh, but nonetheless uh, done a very, very fine job. Jen is now back with us. Good evening, Jen. Good evening, Matthew. I uh, will go back to Clive's report in just a second, uh, but I haven't talked to you yet about the CanCon. I said to Natalie on the first day uh, that the CanCon is a really good idea, and I I feel like the CanCon was probably your idea, so I should offer some uh, congratulations for that. Well, thanks. I what actually happened is, you know, we were originally going to do something similar to what what you did, what you all did when the General Assembly was hosted uh, by the UK. And then we just it, it got a little bit more complicated because there were a lot of sites that I could think of. But Canada being so massive, it was a little bit more complicated to necessarily get our people to specific places to do the recordings and so that led me to looking at different things online that I could find. And then I happened to find a website with a whole bunch of different kinds of weird or fun facts about Canada. And I thought, hey, maybe we're just going to do that. And I'll just, I'll give some actual, you know, really useful information mm. or, you know, like geography, different things like that. And then I thought, I've got some random, who doesn't want to know about food or, you know, just kind of quirky things about the country that's hosting. So that's that's where that's where that came from. Well, I'll let you into a secret. The way we did it for 2020, and this is not to dismiss what you're doing at all because it's absolutely wonderful and it, it's good to have diversity. Uh, but the way we decided in 2020 which places to do the postcards from was we looked at where the blind schools were. And that was okay. that was how we did it. So um, London obviously was the exception because that's where the General Assembly came from and then... Uh, or was was going to come from before it got cancelled. And then Worcester, because of New College Worcester. Coventry, because of Exel Grange. Um, Liverpool, because of St. Vincent's. And then we realised that we'd got uh, England covered quite nicely, but we hadn't done Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And so we did one postcard for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. But yeah, that's that's how we reached the shortlist of cities for 2020. I had no idea. And, you know, I, I know that you got a lot of feedback about this in 2020, but I'll just say they really were delightful. And anyone listening to the podcast, I believe they're still out there. They're still a part of the podcast, are they not? They actually are. They're still in the feed, would you believe? Um, I took them off the website temporarily because I thought it might be a bit confusing for people to see that. But after the midterm, I'll put them back on the website. Uh, But yeah, they're still in the podcast feed and um, they're in seasons. So this is actually season six of the podcast feed. Um, But yeah, seasons one through five are days one to five of the General Assembly from 2020. Well, season six, we're a really successful production, aren't we? I know. We're doing doing well. (laughs) We are doing very well. I I will come back to Clive's report. The reason why I originally brought up the CanCon, though, was to say that our banknotes sound like they're kind of the same as yours. We also reached that decision about not putting Braille numbers on the notes, but we use the letter G on our on our banknotes. So one G should be the five, but it wasn't ready in time. So the five is blank and then two Gs for the 10 and then three Gs for the 20 and presumably four Gs for the 50. Okay, that's that's good to know. I My, my father was born in the UK and so I have a lot of family there. And I can remember the first time I, I went with my grandmother when I was in high school and I, I loved the fact that the bills, because of course we didn't have the Braille then, I loved the fact that the, and they were pounds then, like that, that was 
Yeah. Oh, I mean, sure. you say for silver pounds, you never, you never had euros, right? No, we never, never had euros. That. That's right. We never could, had euros, could, so never mind. We could use euros. So if, if we wanted to spend euros, <laughs> right. we could do it. But it was never the official currency. That's right. I, as soon as I got partway through that sentence, I went, wait a second. Of course, they were still pounds the last time I went as well. But the first time, I just remember being really excited at the fact that I could distinguish the bills because they were different sizes. Yeah, and they still are. So they still are different sizes. But we we went to polymer bills Oh gosh, not that long ago. In fact, it was a real problem because um, before the pandemic, we were, I think we'd only just switched, literally only just switched to polymer 20 pound notes. So I went into the pandemic with a whole load of paper 20 pound notes that I obviously couldn't spend because we're in the middle of the pandemic and not going anywhere. And there was a serious worry at one point that the they would become invalidated or you know expired or what have you before we had chance to spend them see that's a fascinating thing about the uk because in canada you could you could have a you know even a one dollar bill or a two dollar bill if you have it i believe you can legally stores you know businesses have to accept it i mean i don't know that anybody has them but even a really old five dollar bill you're still welcome to spend it whereas i i can remember you know my dad's relatives telling us like make sure that you don't you know spend your pounds because you're not going to necessarily be able to use them the next time you come. Sure. I mean, to be fair, you can always go into the bank and the bank will sort you out. So you're, you're not going to be that's out what my of, family. My dad yeah. had to do that. Yeah. yeah. You're not going to be out of pocket, but I mean, it, it's, it's a faff that you don't want, right? Yeah, absolutely. So from the quirky to the, uh, I don't even know what the opposite of quirky is, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Clive's uh, Clive's report and the ensuing discussion. I think the first thing that came into my head when we were an hour in and we were still talking about grade one indicators was uh, who who'd have thought that grade one indicators there'd be so much to say about them? Who'd have thought, indeed? Yeah, yeah. I I think um, I you know I one thing that I wanted to say this was Clive's first you know, he only became the chair of this committee in March, right? And so mm. this is sort of his first ICEB, you know, sort of bigger official meeting where he's he's leading a, you know, kind of leading the discussion. I, I thought he did a great job of keeping people on track and just sort of doing that whole, you know, where you you listen to a few people and then you kind of say, okay, I th- this is what I think I'm hearing. Does, is that sounding right? You know, is that sounding what, what everybody else is thinking? So it's never when you get into this kind of stuff there's you know differing points of view all this very very detail oriented stuff so i think it's it's you really have to be you know you really have to be paying a lot of attention and i just mm. want to you know i think I think he did a great job and you're right i mean it, that was quite a i i knew it would be lengthy i'm not sure that i you know in my earlier prediction maybe we should have had a conversation about how long we thought that conversation would go but you know it really it's amazing how it's amazing how long a very specific point can can kind of go on yeah and I say that not not in a negative way it it just it really does amaze me sometimes and the, the nuance in really we're talking about dots five and six that's all we're talking about right dots five six and then occasionally two dots five six and then very very occasionally three sets of dots five six six. followed by a five six three right but that's all we're talking about is is these two dots and 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 you can just talk about them and talk about them and yet here's me 
surprised that the conversation went on for an hour. And yet when I was at Exxon and I was teaching this stuff, we legitimately did have this problem because you, you'd have to transcribe, you know, one squared. Well, one squared was a bad example. You'd have to transcribe, say, 10 squared differently to how you would transcribe centimeters squared and meters squared. And meters squared was particularly difficult because if you wanted to write, say, five meters with a space, you'd do number sign five space letter sign M. And if you wanted to write five meters squared, you'd do number sign five space M letter sign. And like, I realize that there's more to it than that. But like when you're trying to teach like, a very young child. I mean, I was teaching people who were sort of, you know, eight, nine, ten. this stuff, trying to explain that when it's not squared, you put the letter sign before, which of course I'm not supposed to call it a letter sign. And and when it's, when it is squared, you put it afterwards. <laughs> that really actually really confused people because you had to explain a concept that was <clears throat> actually quite technical to somebody who yes. was probably too young to understand that very technical concept. You're absolutely right. I think the thing with the grade one indicator isn't so much, oh, look, there's a symbol here. Oh, look, there's a symbol there. It's it's understanding that bigger principle of why you're putting a symbol where you are and why modifying the equation, as you said, or the, the phrase just slightly will change what you do. And I, I think that probably has a lot to do with why we all find this so conv- convoluted because quite, quite honestly, when I did my UE tech, UEB technical certification last spring I, I mean I'm I took math all the way through high school and i decent at it I don't find it overwhelming but I'm certainly no high level mathematician or or whatever you know however you want to phrase that but I can tell you for sure the hardest one of the hardest things for me or maybe not hard but sort of tricky a little tedious maybe was the whole grade one indicator thing. Sometimes it was perfectly obvious and other times I had to really think that part through. And I mean, it's not even really a mathematical concept that mm. was that was causing that. So I, I'm not saying that to suggest that, you know, we totally have to revamp it because I, I don't really think that's a good idea. I, I, can, I can certainly accept that maybe some clarification would be helpful, but I do appreciate why this gets so convoluted. And I'd made this comment uh, during, sorry, during the meetings earlier, but I don't know if I really said it quite the way that I meant to, but that part of what throws me off is that as a reader, right, because there's a little bit of, in UEB, there's this, well, you put the, I know I always call it a letter sign in my head too. I, you know, try to, I try to be good, but sometimes I can't help myself. But, you know, you, there's a little bit of, okay, you do this when it, you know, it like to, to clear up ambiguity, right? But then there's, there's a part of me that as a reader, my reader's intuition kind of comes into play and goes, well, I'm not confused. So yeah. therefore, I guess I don't need the indicator when really the rule would say in that particular situation, you do. Mm. I, I don't know if I'm making sense and I probably can't pull together an example off the top of my head right now, but there's just times where intuitively I look at it and go, yeah, I know that this is contracted or this is uncontracted. So I guess I don't need the indicator because the rules say, you know, one of the principles is reducing ambiguity or clearing up ambiguity. And so that, you know, that yeah. can kind of lead me astray as a reader. I, I think this is 
relevant to more than just grade one indicators, actually. You know, uh, I think sometimes we're trying to clear up ambiguity and it's right that we do this. Of course it is because it has to be understood by computers so there can be no ambiguity at all. But sometimes the ambiguity that we're trying to clear up is so rare as to not be obvious to the readers. So the one that really caught me out today was James was talking about x to the power of minus one and he said oh well it needs two grade one indicators and in my head i was going why why because you do x and then you do a grade one indicator for the superscript that's fine and then you do a minus one where's the next one of course you forget that the minus one needs to go in grouping indicators otherwise it's just the minus that's superscripted but you know since when have we ever superscripted just a minus sign on its own Right. And in this situation, once you have the grade one indicator and then the superscript symbol and then the opening group, wait, did I say the grade one indicator, then the superscript and then the opening group indicator? Why would you ever think that that's a GH? Because you've already got, but I guess technically you could because the the one grade one indicator before the superscript is technically only a symbol. That's right. Right, and it, so it, and it's not about what you think; it's about what a computer thinks. Exactly, and I don't know why that one is so hard for me. I know, as somebody who, you know, is is involved in you know code, the code maintenance committee, and I, I mean, I'm not Canada's rep, as we talked earlier, but you know, for the technical committee, as somebody who serves in those roles, I completely understand that I cannot make decisions based on who would ever think that, or I would. I, I, I get that. But I, that's where I do get tripped up sometimes is like, mm. oh, yeah, but come on. It's as yeah. if we were going to X to and the And the thing is, it's what everybody G's. says. It's what everybody yeah. says. When I was at Excel and I had to explain rules and people go, yeah, but come on, nobody's going to think about this. And that was the reaction I get from the staff when I'd point stuff out, you know, well, of course, it's not going to be confused with blah, 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 blah. And you go, yeah, well, not for you. But you imagine this student typing on a Braille note and it actually, it's not about... It does matter then. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, it's not about whether you would superscript a minus, and it's not about whether you would interpret the GH sign as a as an open group indicator or not in that case. It's about the general principle of the rule, right? So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, <sighs> yeah, um, I'm really struggling to think of an example now, but you might not superscript a minus sign, but you might you might superscript something else, and and it's probably easier to write a rule which is catch all rather than write a rule with a bunch of exceptions that you've then got to work through. Well, and I think that's you know why I kept when we were you know talking about say the shape terminator and there was there was something else too that was a little bit like that maybe even the spacing conversation that we had where. You sort of go, okay, I get, I get that it's not always necessary. And, and again, thinking strictly as a reader, I'd go, well, yeah, if it's obvious that the shape is ending, you know, let's not use the symbol. But again, this isn't, and I, and again, I'm not, I'm not being negative, but like, it's not 1960. We're not doing all this by hand where somebody's just going to make that decision. And it's probably going to be a pretty, pretty consistent decision. Now we have this whole thing about, back translation and note takers and braille displays and all these you know machine mm -hmm. you know um mm. braille translation software <clears throat> and things like that and so i think i think you're right that it really is easier to write a consistent rule and that's kind of what, what i always 
remind myself when I start to feel kind of like, oh, come on, I'm like, I'm not dumb. I can figure this out. Like there's that, right? Mm. I think that's, I think that's the, the challenge there because otherwise then you have a rule with a ton of exceptions or you have, you know, somebody doing back translation and it doesn't work out. And so I, I agree with you that I think that's, that's probably where it comes down to. Yeah. I mean, that said, it's possible to write consistent rules that are complicated. So, I mean, in the case of the shape um, terminator, I mean, I don't know enough about shape terminators to really be able to to give you a definitive answer. But I feel like you could write a consistent rule that probably achieves maybe not all of what we want to achieve, but probably pr- achieves 90% of it, which is better than the 0% that it's achieving at the moment. Yeah, and I guess I I don't know that I'm not sure that I think it's a terrible rule. I'd have to I mean I'm I'm familiar with the rule and part of it has to do with whatever comes after. Like I think I mean the example that uh, I believe her name was Diane that she brought up was if if there's a comma after and and I take her point right I, I when it's followed by a comma that's probably what it's going to be what you know that's not going to be a part of the shape. But I think if I remember correctly, and this is one of those things where, you know, someone listening, oh, Phyllis, Kathy, if you're listening and I get this wrong, I'll just be you know, mortified. <laughs> but but I, I believe it's more about like, so you're, you're in, you know, whether you're in grade one mode or not, and you, well, you are if you're using the shape and Terminator because it's WH otherwise. But if it's followed by a space, I think that's the, I think that's almost the only thing that terminates. Like if, if your shape is followed by a space, you don't need the shape terminator, but if there's, if it's followed by something else, then you do. And so I guess from the perspective, you know, and again, this is why I wanted, I, I would kind of interject every once in a while and see if, you know, especially having Joe Sullivan there, right. Because he's, he's been involved in this for a long time, Phyllis as well. And Mm. uh, I wanted to know like, what was the rationale? Because if you, if you say, okay, you need the um, the shape terminator, let's say if the shape is followed by a space, or sorry, you don't need it, pardon me, you don't need it, you also don't need it if it's followed by these this punctuation, you may need it before this punctuation if there's potential for confusion. I, I mean, I don't really know, I'd have to think about it in more detail, but I guess I think sometimes you know, there's other things too, right? Where certain things terminate a specific mode and you're trying to keep that as straightforward and consistent hmm. as you can. Yeah. No, I, I can see it. Uh, and I, I definitely think it needs to be thought through. I'm not suggesting that we're going to solve it on this podcast right now. I think... Oh, you don't think? No, I, I think it, <laughs> it needs a lot more refinement. <laughs> I think a lot of people would be very upset if we thought we were going to do that. Yeah. But no, I, I just think sometimes what we do is we sit there and we think, oh, no, we can't possibly do that because it's going to be too much effort for the computers to program it in. And you think, yeah, OK, but is it going to be too much effort or is it going to be impossible? And there's a difference, because if it's going to be too much effort, then mm, who says it's going to be too much effort? Like, mm. OK, it might be cumbersome, but if you can program it, then it's not unambiguous, is it? Or maybe it is, but like, you know what I mean? Uh, sorry, I do. It, it's yeah. not, so like if it can be programmed, then however difficult it is to program, I feel like actually 
we should give the benefit of the doubt to the reader. But if it can't be programmed, if it genuinely is ambiguous, well, then you have a problem. And then, and then, well, yes, well, then, of course, then you, you've got to defer to the programmers. But I feel like there's possibly a trend towards deferring to the programmers too easily. And that comes from the promotion of UEB as this is a code that makes it easier for back translation. Yeah, I think that is a really important element. And I sort of have a couple comments to that. One is, you raise the point about is it too much or is it impossible? And and that those are very different things, because who decides what's too much? Mm. You know, I mean, obviously, and again, I, I don't, you know, I would, I would, um, I would certainly, not being a programmer myself, take, take the opinion of programmers with a lot of weight and very seriously that's I'm not diminishing their expertise because it's certainly not my expertise but I guess I'm thinking when we say and, and we say it a lot oh that would take that would be a huge effort at what point is a huge effort like when does the the effort become too huge yes as opposed to yeah this is a big effort but it's worth it right I mean there's there's kind of that piece of it and then I mean this whole thing right I, I'm I'm someone who Yes, I, I, I love hard copy Braille and I, I have an embosser and I've got lots of books in hard copy Braille, but I use a Braille display, I would say maybe, I don't know, at least 95% of the Braille I read is is on a display. And so I, I have a tremendous amount of appreciation for, especially, and I, and I would have to change the number, I guess, when I'm talking about, I'm not just BRF files, but so maybe... 70% or 80% of the Braille I read is has not necessarily been transcribed. It's like I'm using iBooks with my phone and my Braille display or whatever mm. that, that is, right? So I really do appreciate the need to have that kind of Braille, like that on-the-fly produced kind of Braille. I appreciate the need for that to be really, really good. I guess one of the tensions I think that we deal with in in code maintenance is the balance, the tension between what's best for the reader, what's best for, you know, what's best for new readers? What about longtime Braille readers? What about back translation? What about electronic on-the-fly translation that like such as what Apple provides and with voiceover? So there's all these things that you hold in tension and you think, okay, we want to make this easier for new Braille readers, but we don't want to forget about the longtime Braille readers who have specific you know preferences and not not mm. preferences because it's not really necessarily about that but who have specific needs or issues or opinions you know that's kind of where i find it's something we need to figure out how we balance yeah and it, it's not easy to do what's your view on um artificial intelligence in the transcription process You're listening to uh, the International Council on English Braille's uh, midterm executive committee meeting. We appear to have lost Jen, and I'm just looking into why we've lost Jen. Um, it says that Jen is connected. Um, so I'll just hang around for a little bit longer in case uh, Jen is able to rejoin us. While we wait for Jen, uh, just to have a look at what's coming up tomorrow... Um, we are going to have um, an interesting few days tomorrow, uh, an interesting few sessions tomorrow, sorry. 
Um, we're going to be having a review of the 2020 resolutions. Um, they've allowed 40 minutes for this, and there are, I'm just counting them now, um, we've got eight resolutions. So that's five minutes per resolution, except some of the resolutions have already been discussed earlier on. So I'm just looking now. Um, Matthew, can you hear me? I can indeed. Hello. Hello. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to try my Apple iPods because my headset seems to have well, gone away. Well, that's very dedicated right. of you. Can you hear me? That's, that's all I can say. You're a bit distant, um, but I think, we can, uh, I think we can carry on. Um, I was, Is it better now? Not really, but I mean, we, you oh, okay. can, we, can, we can hear you, which is the main thing. I was just asking before you went what, the, um, what your view was on uh, artificial intelligence in the Braille transcription process. Well, I, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I'm really sorry, my headphones have decided they've been doing so well all week. I'll have to troubleshoot that. But um, I, I think there's a lot of really good things that can happen. I guess every time I talk about this, I want to give sort of a disclaimer that this isn't about, oh, transcribers aren't, you know, transcribers aren't in, as important as they used to be. I think they're still vitally important. And I, I, I have a huge appreciation for the work that they do, but I think there's just times where it's so helpful to be able to get kind of braille on the fly. And, and uh, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one who will attest to the fact that, you know, braille is, has become, I mean, I use it now more than I ever did. And I mean, I was totally, I was kind of one of those kids that everything was Braille. Everything that could possibly be Braille was Braille. And I would still say I use it a lot more now even than I did as a kid because of this, this access that we have. So I'm, I appreciate its drawbacks, but I also am really, really thankful for its advantages, especially being I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a really a voracious reader. And so that's probably the thing I appreciate the most is the massively increased access to uh, to Braille books. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's always going to be room for a transcriber. Certainly from my point of view as a transcriber, there were things that I had to do, which um, <clears throat> even artificial intelligence, as intelligent as it is, would find difficult to do because it was editorial stuff. And I'm not just talking about restyling a document. I'm talking about, you know, you would have questions like, um, this is in, you know, a mark this in red and you go, well, you just obviously just can't do that. You know, you need to figure out a better way of doing it than that or like yeah. reflowing tables and stuff like that. I think AI would find very difficult, but I was more meaning in terms of this, this complicated or not even complicated, this, this technical stuff, you know, when we're talking about grade one indicators and we're talking about stuff like this and we're talking mm. about what a computer would find ambiguous. I feel like, um, artificial intelligence it's not going to solve a transcriptions a, a transcriber's problems you know, completely but it should at least be able to disambiguate some of this stuff which traditional programming can't yeah i i think it's you know to your point right some of the more complicated stuff is there's always going to be that you know there's always going to be the things that aren't going to be best produced via AI and sort of mm. non-human intervention, right? So I, I feel like we need to kind of put that on the table and accept it that, hey, listen, that's 
that's just the way it's going to be. We're never going to, I mean, I don't mean to be negative or, you know, kind of, yeah, I guess negative or defeatist or whatever. Yeah. I just don't know that we would ever get to the point where a student could say, hey, I've got a calculus on Monday. I'll just, you know, pair my Braille display with, you know, a device. And I'm sure the output will be fantastic. Like, I don't think we're ever going to have that. Uh, no, you know, no, no, that kind of thing. <clears throat> no, no, I don't think we are either. And I think the amount of money that you would have to put into it, you know, you'd have to put a lot of money, a lot of man hours, a lot of research into it. And I don't think any company is seriously going to put that money in. So I think the likelihood of us actually ever getting artificial intelligence in the transcription process is small because of that. Um, but I, I do think if somebody puts some some serious money into it, I think actually, like I say, even just if we could, because, you know, things like the, the um, oh, it's gone completely out of my head now, but things like that, you know, where, where we're saying, well, yeah, but we can't do that because a computer won't necessarily understand. And you think, yeah, but a computer might understand. And so, you know, you're not necessarily making it transcriber free, but you're making the transcriber's tools more powerful. Yeah, I think it's definitely, I think it's helpful in a lot of ways. Um, certainly, you know, transcribing, even what we call manual transcription now, transcribing that way is a whole lot easier than, you know, I can remember being in elementary school and the, the back then actually the, the woman that did all of my braille, she was actually called a braillist because there's another language discussion for you, but over here, a Brailleist is a transcriber. And, you know, she was doing everything on a Perkins Brailler. And so for sure, there's all kinds of, even in the complicated stuff, it's a help to have, you know, it gets you more of the way there than it would if, uh, you know, if you, if you didn't have that. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I think I've adjusted my head. I think I've sorted out my headphone situation. If you can... Um, give me a second or two. I'm sure you can um, come up with. Well, some... I'll I'll definitely do that. Uh, you are listening, as I say, to coverage of the midterm executive committee meeting of the International Council on English Braille. Uh, I was just going through these resolutions that we're going to be talking about tomorrow, and UEB support in digital Braille tools. We've sort of already talked about today, so we we may not need to talk much about that tomorrow. Um, Availability of uh, Braille during national and international crises, that will need to be talked about, um, as will the importance of Braille for adults and older adults. But then you see preserving music Braille presently only available in hard copy. Um, I think that one we won't need to do much talk about. Documenting shorthand codes, yeah, we'll talk about that. Marrakesh Treaty, yeah. World Braille Council and New International Manual, I think we've already talked about. So, I mean, we can, you know, five minutes per resolution, but actually, you know, there's probably maybe three or four of those that we can knock out because we've already talked about them. So that should leave a bit more time to talk about the remainder. Um, then we'll have a break. And I apologize, I didn't. Uh... Oh, I'm sorry, Matthew. No, no, it's all right. Carry on, it's fine. <laughs> I just, I'm sorry, I thought I had resolved it. It, it was, I've had... It's time to buy a new headset. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> well, it's no problem. That's, that's all I can. <laughs> it, after the break tomorrow, we will have the country reports. Um, there's seven of those, and we've got 55 minutes to do it in. So that's just over five minutes per report. Um, it's 
it's it's sort of eight minutes or so, I think, um, somewhere around there. Then the ICEB archives will be discussed. Then we'll look ahead to the 8th General Assembly in 2024. Some other business, closing comments, thank yous and farewells. And that's what's coming up tomorrow. I'll be joined tomorrow by Natalie Martiniello. So let's take this opportunity to thank Jen for persevering with headphone trouble and... uh, (laughs) And sticking with us. And, and thank and you thank all for you. your patience. It, yeah. And, and thanks for being here over two days of two very uh, meaty days of technical discussion, which, you you know, it's it's not easy to make a commentary on that and, and make it sort of bring it to life. So thank you very much for all your support with that. Oh, and Matthew, thank you. Thank you for um, it's a pleasure to co-host with you because you do such a great job of directing the conversation, which I, I really appreciate. I did just want to say before, because I don't know when I, I got cut off at one point, I just realized, oh, my goodness, I, I think I lost Matthew. Oh, no, my headset has died. Um, but I guess I just wanted to to know to get your thoughts, because I had been sort of going on about the tension between, you know, when we make these decisions about the code and you know, we're thinking about back translation and machine, you know, um, electronic braille translation and new readers and lifelong learners and and all these sorts of things. And that this is the tension. So I just wondered uh, if you had comments on that and maybe you made them once I disappeared. No, you actually disappeared at a very convenient time. Um, (laughs) I I heard everything (laughs) that you had to say. And then I started talking about artificial intelligence. And it was at that point that you dropped off. So no, I think I agree with you about the tension. Um, I didn't have much to say. Um, I've been observing the discussions from a distance. And uh, sometimes I've had things to say. And sometimes I've had very strong opinions. And uh, sometimes my strong opinions have uh, disagreed with the consensus. And that's very difficult because you think, yeah, but why did no one agree with me? Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> That happens to me too, if it yeah. makes you feel better. <laughs> I'm sure it does. Happens to all of us once or twice, I'm sure. Um, but no, I, I think you're right. I think it's such a difficult balance to maintain. And the thing is, UEB is a living, breathing, you know, evolving code. And so actually... We're starting to, you know, one of the things that, that's really interesting to me is we're starting to look back now at why did the original committee make the decisions that they made? And the original committee are even coming back and saying, well, we made the decisions that we made because at the time, X, Y, Z, but actually things have moved on now and that argument doesn't really stand up anymore. Or we considered that argument, but at the time, it wasn't really worth considering because it was such a minor point, but now it's become a major point. So, you know, even the original committee that made the decisions that they made are quite happy for us if there's a compelling reason to to change that. And I think that's really healthy for the continuing development of the code. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it's different things change, right? Technology changes, print conventions change. And so I think, yeah, it is, it's it's great that they are so open to that. And I, I think you're right too, that it's there's got to be a compelling reason. We don't want to be changing the code every day. And I guess, you know, the final thing I would say is it really highlights the importance of keeping track of these things. It's not just about what decision we made or they made, but why? Because sometimes somebody raises an issue and we talk about it. It's like, once we realize why they made that decision, yeah, sometimes there's a compelling reason to change it. And then other times it's like, oh, I hadn't thought about that reasoning. Yeah, that really does make sense. No, you're right. It would probably, it would be more of a problem, would cause more problems to change it. So it really does help to know why a given decision was made before we try to, 
make changes without having that background. Well, that's all very true. And uh, on that note, at uh, 25 to the next hour, I'm going to bring this to a close for today. It's been wonderful to have your company, Jen, and the company of all the listeners. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I look forward to being back with you tomorrow with Natalie for the final day when we're going to be talking about resolutions and country reports and uh, much more of a business day tomorrow. Uh, but for now, from myself, Matthew Horspool, and everybody else on the team. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thanks and good night.